this jungleist, specialist, predatorial survivalist, spinning heaven, fire from his lips, burn a slave driver. Time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4-6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4-7 states, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. With all that getting get an understanding again. Welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Catch the live stream there also. We're streaming at abitumi.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream out of Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app in that tune in search engine just type in time for an awakening there you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live even into your car if you had a bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection again it's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app drop us an email at time for an awakening at gmail.com again that's time for an awakening at gmail.com time for an awakening also has a fan page on facebook and that facebook search engine just type in time for an awakening radio program the always interesting content being posted daily by myself or brother richard and do me a favor before you leave that page just hit that like button it's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on facebook and time for an awakening media is also there always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on time for an awakening interesting articles that you can read download at later times and share with your friends also, check out that time for an awakening marketplace and our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, the Sunday, January 22nd edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, activists and organizers from around the country for an intergenerational conversation about reparations. It'll be interesting dialogue this evening, and I hope you can get involved. And you can always get involved with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. 32 we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors mr moderator our distinguished guests brothers and sisters 
our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. 
It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 712 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. You know, the chill is out there. Uh, you know, the other man got to wrap all up in order that. But now that we have uh, guests from, you know, who are who are who we're going to be in dialogue with from um, Minnesota and, you know, Boston, and, you know, where coal is coal. I, I'm I'm acting like coal is coal. They, they living in coal is coal. Um, make me think of, uh, you know, what's that, Gil Scott Heron, um, winner in America. But, you know, Elliot, <laughs> I'm really looking forward um, to our, and, 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 and I appreciate Sister Netta um, assisting us and being able to pull us together to have so many um, people who are engaged in the organizing process towards reparation, or should I say our political economic issue of the moment. I remember hearing someplace where um, they called the civil rights moment was a moment, historical moment um, in time. And what I'm seeing now is that the historical moment is um, for reparations, which is an economic moment. Um, So I'm definitely looking forward to, from an organizing perspective, to learn how different people are organizing around this, to push forward this this demand, and and from just a understanding of, of where where we are in this moment, um, I'm, I'm looking forward. So I, I'm feeling good. Yeah, I, th- I think this will be a uh, an excellent learning discussion to hear a cross section of our people from around the country and how they're viewing uh, this struggle that we're going to be involved in and that we're involved in presently uh, with the this uh, power structure, the founders of this country, uh, descendants of people that have uh, that have enslaved our ancestors. This is going to be an interesting discussion, Richard. You know, this is not the first discussion that have been had. You see discussions all over social media and things of that nature. But uh, what we're going to try to do tonight is kind to uh, is, is uh, approach this from a different uh, perspective, uh, an organizing perspective, and see how we can organize our people to move forward on this issue. Um, we got folks from around the country that are involved in organizing, different activists from around the country. Uh, some of them I have their names. Others, uh, I'll kind of uh, get them involved in the conversation. Uh, rather, uh, Richard, you mentioned Sister Annetta John. She's from uh, Florida. Uh, we have uh, uh, Brother James Keedy. He's from the Boston area. Also, Sister Antonio, uh, Antonia Edwards, she's also from Boston. They represent the group Solidarity Community Engagement. Uh, we also have uh, Brother Taheran Cruz uh, from the Minneapolis area and uh, some of the activists, uh, other activists that he has on with him. So we'll kind of uh, get people involved in the conversation as we move forward, kind of get them to introduce themselves, uh, uh, introduce uh 
the groups or the, the work that they're doing in their certain areas. And, uh, and then we'll move forward from that point. Uh, we'll start with the, with the sister Netta cause she kind of put things together. Uh, Richard, I think she's here. Uh, sister Netta, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Sister Netta, can you hear me? I don't think she has her audio enabled because uh, she's not muted. So what we'll do, we'll um, we'll we'll jump up here to uh, to Sister uh, Antonia Edwards up there in Boston. Sister Antonia, I know you can hear me. Sister Antonia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she can't hear me either. Let's go to Brother James. Uh, is that Kitty? Brother Brother James? Hey, how you doing? It's, it's pronounced Kit as in a first aid. Okay, Brother James Kit. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. It seems like uh, a couple people are having some tef- technical difficulties. Uh, I hope you guys can see in the chat and everything like that. Yeah, when, when, they, when they come on, just uh, let the, this conference room kind of take control of your audio it'll ask you a little question can uh can they, we control your audio and video so just tell them you know just give the consent and that way you can be heard when you come on because right now i don't think sister antonia hears me at all sister antonia can you hear me no she can't um yeah she she, she just takes she can't hear anything yeah she gotta just go out and come back in and let the enable your audio Great. I think she gave me the thumbs up. Uh, and anybody that can't be heard, uh, Sister Netta, she couldn't be heard, so I guess she'll go back out and come back in. We'll kind of get things straight. Yeah, just leave okay. leave and re-enter, Sister. Uh, I'll take her off here so she can come back in. Uh, Brother Kit, uh, hold on a second. I'm going to see if uh, everybody else is having that issue. If not, then we can move forward. I know Brother Teheran heard me because uh, we talked earlier. So he's on hold. Hey, Brother Elliot, can you hear me? Yes, sir. I can hear you. Okay, this is Adrian Mack. Um, I'm up in the Twin Cities with Black Civic Network. So I think our mute came in. We just had to hit the star button twice to unmute ourselves. Okay, yeah, it's no problem. I'll uh, just because uh, uh, when I kind of bring you guys in, I'll just, uh, but just as long as you can be heard, I'll, I'll kind of mute you, but uh, just as long as you can be heard, that's good. Uh, yes, sir. All right, I'll put you back on mute, Brother Adrian. We just had to hit the start button twice to unmute ourselves. Okay, yeah, it's no problem. I'll uh, just because uh, uh, when I. Sir. Okay, now let me. Uh, I think this is Brother Rashawn here. Brother Rashawn, I know you can hear me. I'm here, I'm ready though. Great, great, good. All right, I'll put you back on hold. Uh. And let's go up here to uh, Illinois, Sister Rose. Can you hear me, Sister Rose? Hello? Hello? I don't know if you can hear me. Oh, I can hear you. Hello? I can hear you clear. Oh, great. Great. I'm, this is my first time on this, on this format, so I'm getting used to it. But, yes, I'm here. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll put you back on hold. Richard, uh, besides this, another look like we got enough here to get started. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, 
And uh, brother, brother Adrian, he was on uh, four nine two eight. Okay, four nine two eight. All right, four nine two eight. Good. All right. Well, we'll get started with what we have. Let's go up there to uh, Boston again. And Sister Antonia, she ought to be able to hear us now. Uh, Sister Antonia, yes, I can hear you. Good. I'm good. all set. Thank you. Great. Great. Uh, we'll start with you, Sister Antonia. Um, uh, uh, take two or three minutes to introduce yourself, introduce the organization that you're working with, and uh, the the activist work that you're doing in your particular area. The floor is yours. Okay. My name is Antonia Edwards. I um, have, am a co-founder of the organization called Solidarity. James, Pete, and Jonathan, Brian, and I started that um, organization probably like three years ago. So we're the ground troops. Basically, we do community um, engagement. Um, we go into different events and introduce ourselves and educate people on lineage-based reparations. Um, we also work from Connecticut and Massachusetts. We do both states. Um, I've held on a lot of re- um, legislation work in Connecticut. I was on racism as a public health crisis. Um, desegregate Connecticut, also um, children's um, behavioral health as a um, crisis. And currently we um, entered a proposal for reparations in Connecticut, and that bill is being um, proposed to the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. It's um, HB 818. I um, have since been in Boston, where I'm from, for the last, like, five months and have been instrumental in the reparations um, task force that they built here. And so basically the team and I basically collaborate with all other grassroots organizations, um, U.S. Freeman Project, Young United Sons and Daughters, Five Freedmen. We also work with um, the um, Freedmen of Descendants of Chicago. So basically, we've done a lot of reparations work across the board into different um, different aspects of it. So we're just on the ground. We just do a lot of community engagement work. Okay, good. Um, now I know I know you said Brother Kit is involved with your organization. Brother Keith, yeah, Brother Jonathan, Keith. James Keith is on the line, and Jonathan um, Brian should be on the line. Okay, well let's go over to. Uh, uh, Brother James, to see if he want, he want to add sure. something to what you said, Brother James. You're part of the same that. organization, so maybe you want to add a little bit more to uh, what Sister Antonia was saying. That's right. Uh, sis said, sis said, uh, uh, really a lot of what we do, you know, I'm part of Solidarity co-founder. Uh, we've been up and running for about three to four years now. We've been doing legislative efforts um, in Connecticut and Boston. We've also been doing events. Uh, to get more in tune with the community in both Connecticut and Boston. Uh, we work with NASD and CJEC to make sure that we're all speaking the same language and speaking the same uh, verbiage about our our, uh, our struggle in this fight for reparations. And the sons and daughter of Freedmen as well, and we continue to work with anybody who's working with us to push this uh, matter focused to the federal level. Good, good, good. Okay. And Elliot, um, Sister Netter is on um, in 0893, which I just, did she, did she just leave? No, she's yep. there. Okay. I just wanted to let you know. Okay, good. Uh, in fact, man, if she's on, we'll go to her now. Uh, Sister Netter, can you hear me? Hey, good, good evening. Can you all hear me fine? Yes. Hear you loud and clear. I apologize for the technical difficulties. I could not figure out how to um, do the, um, the settings in order for the camera and audio to work, so I apologize. And, and just to, uh, my name is Ned, Ned Johns. I'm originally from New York, currently in Florida. And what I've been doing for the past few years is 
trying to identify reparations home. So what we've been doing is I represent an organization called reparationsacademy.org. And what we do is we generally um, work to inform and educate the black American community on what reparations is, the various different reparations movements. And what we also do is provide educational courses where we do a book club on Clubhouse Monday to Friday, usually at 9 a.m., where we provide uh, a bunch of educational or historical um, feed background or history. So what we do is we play um, a bunch of audio books that pertain specifically to black American history. We um, started out in the 1800s. It's been over a year and a half. We're still in the 1800s. But in order, um, we feel that to be a really strong reparationist and to um, join the movement and support, understand why reparations are needed and required and deserved and why we are demanding it. So if you understand the history of black Americans in America and the impact that we have on the world, if you understand who we are, how we arrived to be, that can motivate you, that can activate you to get involved in the cause. And another thing that I'm doing, I recently um, done is, after I recognize that there are so many different, I'm calling them now, pop-up reparations, bills, and or states of atonement, um, similar to what the brother spoke to earlier, ensuring that everybody's on, a pay, on the same page, all our reparations bill, although they need to cater to each specific locality, we should have something that where the foundation at least is the same. So what I'm working to do is continue to facilitate and get various different organizations and those that are putting forth bills to meet, to work together, and to ensure that we're all on the same page. Because what we're looking to do eventually, and this is the ultimate goal, is the state acts of atonement are needed and deserving, but we want to get this on a federal level. So if we can get everyone to agree and then leverage all the various different bills together and push it forth manually, um, federally, that would be ideal. So I'm working to introduce myself, familiarize myself with everyone throughout the nation that's putting forth um, state reparations and or state acts of atonement, and also ensuring that the, the goal is to ensure that they um, work together to some extent, become familiar with each other's work, and then support each other. Because just because I don't live in California doesn't mean that I wasn't, and along with thousands of others of us, instrumental in supporting um, the California Council to getting their bills um, pushed forward. And we are looking to, um, to duplicate those same efforts in the various different cities and states. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we'll go up here to, uh, Illinois and, uh, uh, sister Rose Cannon, get her to introduce herself. Sister Rose, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you, can you folks hear me? Oh yeah, loud loud and clear. Okay, fine. Um, I'm from Evanston, Illinois, and we're the city that's known for the first uh, municipal reparations program in the United States. And it is, is a, it is a failed reparations program, and we've been getting a lot of, uh, I would say, what you call good and bad press across, you know, with the mainstream media, uh, the mainstream media basically telling the lie that this has been a successful reparation program, but it, it has not been. It's a $25,000 housing allotment program. 
500 people applied for it here in my city of Evanston, and only 16 have seen the results of the $25,000 each. And that $25,000 is never received in anyone's hand. It goes to a white organization that then determines if you can either use it as a down payment on a new mortgage, uh, use it to refurbish an Evanston, Illinois property, or use it to pay down a mortgage loan on an Evanston property. Uh, the recipient never touches cash money, and it's, it's not a cash money-based uh, thing. Um, so it's been it's being touted across the country as a model that other municipalities want to use. And basically, we're here. the The name of our organization, well, we've got really a dual organization now. Our our first organization, which started about 2019 or 2020, is called Evanston Rejects Racist Reparations, and that's how we describe this program, this twenty five thousand dollar housing allotment program that is here in. Evanston. But we've also uh, beginning to respond to our governor, who is opening up an Illinois reparations uh, commission similar to what's going on in California, or at least he's attempting to do that. There are 18 positions available on, on the Illinois reparations commission, and you have to be an Illinois resident in order to apply. Uh, eight positions have been filled so far, as far as I know from yesterday. I, I look at it every day. So I'm saying that, that those positions are open for Illinois residents to apply. And it will be this, it will be a task force similar to what's going on out in, in California right now, the California task force. Um, we basically operate to inform and educate our, our residents here. We are hoping that we can coordinate with other municipalities across the country, that we can stamp out, or, or I call it, uh, we can supplant these piecemeal reparations that are trying to take uh, uh, trying to take uh, hold across the nation and all that does is is deter us from getting true reparations which we think should come from the US federal government and not from uh, uh, municipalities um, that's about all I have to say right now so thank you for letting me speak okay we'll be we'll be coming back around to you shortly let's go up to uh, Minneapolis and bring in uh, uh, Brother Tahern. Brother Tahern, uh, introduce yourself. Peace. Okay. Peace. I'm Tahern Cruz. I'm um, one of the founders or writer. I wrote the St. Paul Recovery Act reparations bill, which is a municipal um, level reparations. We believe that if a municipality harms a group of people, then that municipality is responsible for paying reparations. I also wrote the Minnesota Migration Act, House File 3850, and we had our first hearing at the state level. So that's a state-level bill. The Minnesota Migration Act is, uh, we call it the Minnesota Migration Act because we migrated from the south to the north to find a better life, but we still found white supremacy and institutional racism here. But the St. Paul Recovery Act passed um, earlier January 4th. It created a permanent reparations ordinance for the city of St. Paul, which will make short-term, medium, and long-term 
recommendations on building generational wealth for the American descendants of chattel slavery who reside in the city of St. Paul. What's unique about it is that it's not a one and done. It's a permanent commission. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. I'm also a BLM Minnesota uh, organizer, and we've been doing police accountability work for a while on that and um, did a lot of work recently, too, about police accountability here in the state of Minnesota. So I'm really excited to have this conversation tonight. Good. Well, listen, we'll be back around to you. Uh, let's go over to 4928. That's Brother Adrian. He's up there in the Minnesota area, too. Brother Adrian, are you uh, affiliated with the same group as uh, as Brother Turn? No, sir. No, sir. I'm, I'm representing with uh, my brother uh, Nick Muhammad and Thomas Berry, who's on the line as well. We represent Black Civic Network, which we are a political organizing group up here that's registering black folks to be more involved politically and to make sure that we have a representation um, in Minnesota to speak up for black uh, economic and political interests. So I'm going to pass the mic to my brother Nick, who's going to let you know what we're doing organizing for our reparative justice bill. Brother Nick? Yes, sir. Thank you, Brother Adrian, and I appreciate you all for having me. Um, like, like Brother Adrian said, my name is Nick Muhammad. I'm the executive director of Black Civic Network. Uh, we're a local 501c3 political action committee uh, organization that works at the intersection of black family interests and political policy. And we're drafting a comprehensive reparations bill uh, for the state of Minnesota. And our goal is basically to establish a Department of Reparative Justice uh, that interfaces with the state, with the county, and municipal level governments. And we're also calling for the establishment of a fund that operates more like an endowment uh, so that we actually have a principal and we're able to actually fund reparations work ongoing so it's not like a uh, a uh, one budget, one line item budget inside of the state and it'll be able to be ongoing so we can continue to work to make sure that we're actually pushing for, you know, substantial change and have resource for that to happen. So, you know, we've been pushing this bill for the last three years uh, under Senator Champion, and uh, we've recently got what they call a, a trifecta, where the party of our, our representative of our, of our bill has actually um, gained, garnered the support of the House and the Senate, and he's now the president of the Senate, along with the, the governor. So the conditions for us to be able to push this thing forward and make a lot of headway is, is optimal. Um, but we still got to make them do what's necessary. So uh, right now we're just working on making sure we're showing up the right leadership of the House. And, again, our bill is concentrating on making sure that we have a long-term uh, steady stream of resource and building a systematic approach to a reparation system uh, and not, you know, just uh, a one-and-done. All right, uh, Brother Muhammad, thanks for your contribution. And we'll be right back around. We're going to swing back around to you Uh Momentarily, no, no problem. Let's go to uh, two six seven. That's Brother Rashawn. How are you, sir? No, uh, how you doing? How you doing? Great, great. Uh, introduce yourself, Brother Rashawn, and, and and talk about the the organization. Yes, sir. Rashawn Williams, aka DJ Reezy. For folks that know, also DJ. So I'll throw that in there in case you hear me. Folks, here, folks, call me Reeze. I co-chair the Philadelphia chapter of the Cobra here in. The city right now we're focused on moving the Philadelphia City Council to establish a reparation task force and moving the mayor to establish a reparation commission. 
Uh, the language that we use is that we seek to study and develop reparations for Black and African American descendants of enslaved Africans in the United States, Negro and colored Americans, and American freedmen emancipated from slavery. And right now, much of the work that we've been doing is making sure that the community understands reparations, uh, making sure that folks understand the differences and nuances race and ethnicity so that the descendant group, which is lineage-based, are the recipients of reparations, making sure that black people, our people can come together and have some common dialogue, comprehension around history and their ability to not just receive recompenses, but actually see self-determination as the only option for a reparative justice system. So we're looking at ways by which the Philadelphia municipality will actually have black descendants be able to sit on boards, sit in departments, develop funds, uh, actually look at the municipality and play a role in making sure that governance looks the way that it needs to for black Philadelphia. Uh, brother, brother Michonne, your, your audio is kind of muffled. Uh, I don't, I don't know whether you're on a hands free or, or what, but if you could, uh, kind of either get closer to your mic or to your phone it would be better uh does anybody oh, oh that's that that's 100 percent clear <laughs> good okay cool but now now being with uh you kind of ended up that circle of people that we have on so far i'll kind of start from you and go back around uh because you mentioned about uh going around and defining uh reparations to people that may may or may not be aware uh, talk about that definition and how are you defining reparations in COBRA as a group or, or the, you know, just how are you defining it? And we'll go around and get the same uh, response from some of the other organizations. We look at the word reparations by its root, which is repair, and the action of providing repair. And so when we think about reparations, see it and seek to perform it, we first tell everybody that they're gods. You got to remember that we, we're the first people. We made it in the image of, and so we need to act like and restore ourselves to. So math, literature, sciences, agriculture, when we study who we are, where we were, where we come from, and what we've contributed to the world, that's the precedent and standard by which we're seeking to have all of our people be restored to. Um, quite, yeah, quite frankly, Good, good. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, we'll move over here to, uh, to Sister Netta. She's uh, kind of next in order and then we'll, we'll keep on going back around. Sister Netta, uh, how are you defining reparations to the organizations that you either represent or, or that you communicate with, uh, the definition of reparations to our people? So what we've done is, as many have, we've ad- adopted the UN standard for reparations. And that's going to be cash payment, restitution, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and guarantees of non-repetition. And I would also add under this that I think it's a given is protection. We want protections um, on a go-forward basis. We want to be protected. Um, that will fall under um, non-repetition. But we want to be placed in a position where as the United States government cannot give it and then take it away for us, meaning 
after we um, full repair means that we will not face these harms again, nor with our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and our great-great-grand. So that's, that's full re- um, repair for me. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's move back up to uh, Minneapolis. Uh, 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 Brother Muhammad. Uh, I think this. I think this is Brother Muhammad or Brother Adrian. Brother Muhammad, are you there? Yes, I am. We've also adopted the UN approach as well with those five basic principles. Okay. All right. Let me jump over here to uh, to uh, Brother Teheran. Brother Teheran, um, your definition of uh, repair and reparations. Um, we also adopted the UN's five principle. Also, though, there's ARP acknowledgement, restitution, and closure. Okay. All right. Let me jump over here to Sister Rose up there in Evanston. Sister Rose. Um, yes. Once again, uh, we support the UN the UN five basic principles. Uh, we support those. We define the entitled class as lineage-based individuals who are descendants of chattel slavery, and that's who we deal with. The people that who have invaded our city are Pan-Africanists, and we are totally against them. Okay. I'll put you on hold and move to Sister Antonia. Sister Antonia. Hi, how are you? I We, too, um, support the five pillars of um, reparations from the UN. We want to make sure that it's lineage-based and it's clearly defined that it goes for the four million emancipated slaves, the descendants of those, and so those are the American freedmen. So we want to reactivate the American Freedmen Bureau, um, the American Freedmen Bank, um, we want to have these um, institutions in every state to represent us. There's offices of immigration. However, there aren't any freedmen um, offices um, in any locate locales. And so can I just um, clarify something? I really, really jumped into this local municipality stuff um, because I came back to Boston and found out that they were trying to shut us out of that, and it's knocking in Cobra. They had pre-appointed themselves to um, a commission, and when I found out, I, I stifled that. And so we now don't have them as the six organizations that are um, pre-appointed for the um, task force. We have categories like um, long-term co- um, community activists, um, elderly, um, somebody who's a youth. So in doing so, um, I just wanted to make it clear that the, the bill that was here defined as being for descendants of U.S. chattel slavery, those were black, and not necessarily in the U.S., not necessarily all black minus thing. So to me, local reparations is money. I, I didn't even want to get involved with it because most people in the, in the municipalities want to receive cash reparations, and they're not going to understand social economic programs. So I've always fought for the federal level. So I'm just starting to get into the local um, municipalities reparations and it's just disastrous and so Miss Rose can tell you that and so any reparations if you want to call it that which I don't believe in I believe it should be acts of atonement at the local state level um, is very muddy and so um, most of the people who are trying to advocate for it here in the Boston and Connecticut area and also New York are basically um, people who have created 5013Cs they're Pan-African, they're not going Cobra they're trying to funnel the money through, they don't care if we get reparations they're just trying to do a grift until they, the, the wheels fall off. So if I have to come in and fight for our people to have our name acknowledged, it's going to be American freedmen, those who descend from U.S. chattel slavery, um, and those blacks. And that's what I do. Uh, okay. Uh, Brother James, uh, are, how are you defining uh, repair and reparations? 
Well, one of the things I feel is necessary to to, to lay out is the, uh, the our reparations has to come from a federal level because the state budgets together, all 50 states, 50 um, states together do not have a budget in order to tackle the black wealth uh, gap that we see today. I think one of the big uh, focuses we have is not only do we demand uh, cash distributions per descendant, but we feel like each descendant should get a reparations portfolio that also comes with protections that we're all demanding as a collective. So I think once you see these type of layouts and realize that this is what we want the federal government to give us, it makes no sense to even play on the state level besides for atonement, you know, state acts of atonement. Other than that, all of these little reparations pop-ups are just fires that actually make it more complicated and difficult to for the federal level to take us more seriously because they're going to say that all of these little piecemeals are given out and that's not something they're going to have to bear anymore. And that's something we don't want to happen. Okay. All right. Uh, Brother Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, as I, I'm listening, um, one thing that I, you know, wanted to, uh, before I get to a question and, and because there's um, multiple um, 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 individuals, organizers that are from the different areas, you know, I, the question I'll throw out is in general and you can decide, you know, like who wants to answer it or if somebody feels that they need to um, develop it more, if even if it makes sense. But, you know, um, the thing that um, comes to mind, you know, that um, we were, you know, Elliot, we were talking to um, Pro- Professor, was it, um, was it, was it James? Uh, um, last week, was that last week we had? Um, yeah, James Taylor. Lance Taylor from uh, University Lance of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, and he provided me for some, for me, understanding in our movements over time in in this in North America that we operated within cycles. Um, he, he mentioned that we operated with be a period where, like the last period that we came out of, the civil rights was a political. Um, at another time, um, maybe before um, or or simultaneously, we were operating out of the cultural. And it seems with this the reparations um, moment that we're in now, and listening to you know um, um, the the women and men that are are organizers in the com- community uh, around this. Um, demand that we're in an economic moment, in an in a economic cycle. Um, but I wanted to, because people are from different locations, I wanted to ask this. I'm interested in our history, right? Um, um, fortunately or unfortunately. And so what I wanted to know is, and I, I understand um, how we're defining reparations for, you know, and I understand how we're moving, whether it be locally or or to be able to move um, nationally, to have a national uh, uh, repair um, to Africans of, you know, chattel slavery. I always like to say the 13th Amendment. But for your in your local area, I'm curious how the people who are eligible, um, who are, no, who are tied to chattel slavery, how did they get to, um, and let me let me start off with the the north was that the northwest corner, um, um, Minnesota. How, how were how did the um, what is the story that you can briefly tell us of how 
um, black people um, get get to who are entitled, who come from that chattel slavery? How did they get to Minnesota, or whether it be St. Paul, St. St. Um, you know, Twin Cities, or or not? How did they get there? So, um, and I don't have the names in front of me, so um, I know. Um, Brother Adrian, if you don't mind, and then others can follow up. And then, like, can everybody, for the area that you represent, can you give me a, give us a synopsis of the connection between the people of where you're organizing at and how the history of how they got there? Brother, Brother Adrian, could you help me help us with that? Absolutely. Um, so hopefully y'all can hear me. Yes. And uh, it's a, Minnesota is a, very peculiar um, migrant, migratory story when it comes to black folks who are descendants of chattel slavery because for the most part, before Minnesota was just a territory and there was um, several forts and military posts that was um, in conflict and in trade with the indigenous people up here, black folks had a presence here um, in small numbers, but there was always um, small percentage of us, and there was a few of us that was a part of that trade experience with, between indigenous and English settlers and even the French. And so there was always kind of like a small representation of us, but Minnesota in its earlier years was established by a lot of Virginians, um, slaveholders um, of Virginians who was migrating up into this territory early, as early as the 1810s and 1820s. And so there's a small percentage of us that came by way of that selection of groups of um, um, English um, migrants who was moving out west to try to uh, occupy some land, be a part of the fur trade, be a part of the pine trade, and be a part of these other industries that was developing up here in this area as the industrial establishment of factories was moving in. And so there was a small percentage of black folks who came by way of Virginia and Maryland who was a part of that piece with those early English settlers. But then um, later on in the 19th century, you also got a lot of black folks who began to migrate up into the territory from the southern Midwestern area. So you had some coming from the Arkansas, the uh, Missouri, um, the St. Louis areas, uh, even some from um, Tennessee and Kentucky who had uh, some for the most part, established uh, places. We were, a lot of black folks, especially black men, were coming up here um, working in certain trades and being contracted up here as bricklayers um, and being a part of industries where they were building certain mounds and certain um, um, capital buildings in the small cities. But particularly around um, the territorial time of Minnesota, which is the 1850, 1840s, 1830s, 1850s, up until uh, I think it's 1856 when Minnesota officially became a state, there was a brief period where Minnesota, for the most part, rolled out the red carpet for slave owners to purchase land, to establish um, um, real estate up here. They basically courted slave owners, not only from Virginia, but from the southern regions of the United States. So Minnesota was always as a territory welcoming to the slave-owning experience. And in that experience, there was a point in time between 1854 and 1855 where you had um, Minnesota was just comfortable with slave owners and their um, um, black occupants being a part of that um, um, experience up here. And then, so you, um, early in the history of Minnesota, you see um, slave owners sitting on boards, sitting on companies, and sitting on corporations as a part of the unique, unique experience of how they've defined the political and economic structure of Minnesota. But towards 
the um, um, post-Civil War, you start seeing more black folks who were migrating up here from um, um, territories of Missouri, um, Arkansas, and establishing themselves. And you start seeing a much more larger percentage of black folks moving into the area. Um, but the Twin Cities, particularly Minneapolis and St. Paul, was always a hub for a growing concentration of black folks in the mid-19th century. But we really didn't see the biggest boom of black folks coming up here until after World War One, And then that's when, just like most Midwestern states, a big, a large percentage of black folks started to migrate to this area and establish themselves and, um, and to really get um, um, kind of get ranked in terms of seeking opportunities economically and participating in the, the agricultural development of the industries here. One thing to note is that there were uh, particular black folks who came up here directly after the Civil War and was able to occupy some land and to potentially be able to participate in um, specific economic development in agriculture and for the most part, that community doesn't exist anymore. Um, white folks who moved in, took over the territory, um, used many different systemic means to completely eradicate and destroy that black community. And now when we talk about that um, in Minnesota history, it's almost as if it was never a part of the history books. And that's quintessential what happened to a lot of black establishments here as the development of Minnesota State became engrooved into the, uh, the Union. But black folks moved up here primarily after World War One and kind of established themselves, similar to the typical migrative story that we know where black folks left the South and moved into the North, the Midwest, into the Western Territory. What's unique about um, the Twin Cities as well, too, is that we also kind of was the um, hub for the second, the second migration. And I'll close here that by the 18, um, late 1870s, 1880s, as we start seeing different um, government programs, welfare programs, establishing establishing themselves and creating different opportunities for um, families who had um, you know, needy families to get certain benefits, we start seeing a lot of um, our brothers and sisters moving up here from the other Midwestern cities, so Milwaukee coming to Minnesota, Des Moines coming to Minnesota, Chicago coming to Minnesota, and so between the 1880s to the late 1890s, we started seeing another migration. We called it the second migration um, of black folks moving into the Twin Cities and, re and reestablishing themselves and um, for the most part getting trapped into the, the systemic systems of welfare and, and other systems that participate. So I, that's a short synopsis of kind of how black folks kind of establishing got wrapped into the Twin Cities uh, demographics. I'll land there. Thank you for that. And, and before I, I go to um, Sister Rose in Illinois, is there anybody else in um, Minnesota that have anything that they would expand on, especially from an organizing perspective in the areas that you're working in? Um, and, and I understand there's um, maybe a couple other groups. Is there anybody who wish to expand on what um, the brother had raised, um, developed as a historical narrative? Um, I would just say, if I could make two points real quick, um, there's a book called Slavery's Reach by Brother, um, it's called Slavery's Reach by Christopher Lehman, and it documents the slaveholders that were here, like um, Joseph Lowry was the founder of St. Cloud. Uh, him and his dad brought slaves up to Minnesota from uh, St. Cloud. Joseph Calhoun, which um, a late Calhoun was named after, uh, he had slaves. He was one of the biggest slave owners in American history. He had like 700 slaves that he 
uh, inherited from his father. But Joseph Lowry had a newspaper called The Union, and today that newspaper is called The uh, St. Cloud Times. Aiken was a governor from South Carolina who came up here. I think Aiken County might be named after him, but he also gave the University of Minnesota a loan when they were struggling on, when they were on going through hard times and got them back up on their feet. Scott County, Shakopee County, a lot of these counties here in Minnesota were established and developed by money that was derivative from the slave trade. But just to go back real quick, you know, people are talking about atonement, but mo the first five steps of atonement are non-economic um, steps. So someone must point out the wrong. Here in St. Paul, we already did that. When we, uh, the city of St. Paul passed resolution 2177, which uh, apologized for holding dress, Scott military slavery, apologized for the destruction of the Rondo community. And that's another uh, way people got here. The Rondo community was a, a thriving black community. Uh, 50 to 80% of the black people in St. Paul lived in Rondo. But that's acknowledgement of the wrong. Three, confess the fault to God. Four is repentance. And then the fifth step of atonement is reparations. So when people say we should do atonement at the state or, you know, that's the same, it's, it's saying the same thing. And then if you go, if you say you adopted cessation or assurances of guarantees of non-repetition, number one, under international law, it says under international law, a state responsible for wrongfully injuring a people. So states, are under international law is under an obligation to cease the act if it's continuing to harm people. So not just getting the money, but stop killing us socially, politically, economically, spiritually, and physically, because we're, we've seen what happened to George Floyd. We've seen what happened to Dante Wright. We've seen what, so it's not just, you know, I just think people, when we say things, it sounds good, but we really need to think about and, and, and study more so we understand what we're saying. But if so, if we're saying we support the five principles of reparations, this number one says that a state is, and so the state of Minnesota is responsible for harming black people. The state of Minnesota has the biggest education gap in America. The state of Minnesota has the biggest excuse me, racial excuse wealth me. gap in America behind Wisconsin and Washington, D.C., and they have a $20 billion surplus. Yeah, and we're not going to hold them responsible. Yeah, Those are just some of the things I wanted to say. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and, and I wanted to, and I wanted to come to, um, you know, clarification. But I just, I think it's interesting to hear um, how we make the connection of of the people who are in the location, especially those who are organizers. And I take that all of you are doing this here, um, you know, the serious work of organizing. So, um, um, Sister Rose, in 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 Illinois, in where Evanston, um, where you are. Um, how do you, how is the history of the people for, of chattel slavery um, co connected? How is the people in Evanston connected to the people who were directly tied to chattel slavery uh, from a historical perspective? Um, thank you for that question. Yeah, and I was listening to everybody else. The the first gentleman did, did a terrific synopsis of his history of the Twin Cities. Um, Evanston, the program that they have established here 
which is there which is the false reparations program it's based on the period from 1919 through 1969 and that if any black people lived in what they call the fifth ward district of this small city um, they likely were black and if they suffered redlining or anything like that uh, or difficulty with buying houses or maintaining property here, that was one of the qualifications that they that they used in order for them to apply for this program. They had to have lived in the city of Evanston from 1919 to 1969, lived in this pretty predominantly black uh, uh, precinct in the city and suffered redlining or other, uh, you know, or, or, or other racist acts against them that prevented them from moving up in the society. Um, <clears throat> there is, there was no delineation made about whether this particular, this particular group came from chattel slavery, chattel slavery or were the descendants. However, my family was in that group, and we do descend from from chattel slavery. Um, the city of Evanston uh, was founded by Methodists by uh, in 1857, and it was incorporated in 1863, and it is the home of Northwestern University, which has one of the, if not the highest uh, 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 amounts of money tied to it uh, of, of any of the universities across the United States or maybe in the whole world. It's got almost a billion-dollar endowment to it right now, um, and it was founded in 1851. Now, as far as who built that university, I'm sure there were slaves building it here, and I'm sure they were, I'm sure they were here. Um, in the area of 1919 through 1969, or from 1919 on, my father and his family arrived here from Tennessee, and they migrated here in order to <clears throat> to find better living standards. Um, uh, my mother came from New Orleans, and she married my father later, and she, she came into the city later. It was a very segregated city. There was only one hospital that black people could use, and it was a black hospital, and my mother refused to have her children there. So we were all born in the city of Chicago. And Evanston touches the northern boundary of Chicago. Like I can – if I'm at that boundary, I can step right across the street and, and walk into Chicago. That's how close we are. So we share a lot with 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 Chicago, actually. Um, the primary black community here, uh, I would say, from the the early 1800s and 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 1900s, from the late 1800s and 1900s, they came here predominantly to be domestics for the for the big university people uh, that that lived in the campus area of Northwestern University and for the richer all white segregated communities that were that touched directly north of Evanston so that's where the predominant and our people, the people here, they migrated from New Orleans, from Louisiana, from South Carolina. Uh, a lot of people from Evanston came from Abbeville, South Carolina, particularly uh, Georgia. Um, you know, they came in the migration. But the but this 
this little small area, this black area, was basically established by by the there the 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 slaves lived here, the pre slaves, and then the people that worked as domestics for the rich white families. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that ex- explains what you need uh, to know or not. Well, it, it's helpful, and again, I, I think that it's important for us to what to be able to expand on our historical narrative for the locations that we are are in, in order to be able to show that connection to the, um, as the 13th Amendment say, the 4 million um, who were free or formerly slaves, or even to show, um, fr- fr- what, and I'm and y'all have to help me out on this, the difference between freemen and freedmen, which is those who have maybe got their freedom, say, before, which when we come to uh, Brother Rashawn in Philadelphia, there might be a different historical narrative of the population. But Sister um, Antonia, um, can you do for now you I, did it you say that you're not originally from boston or no you, i am from boston okay. yeah so mm-hmm. i just lived in other states so okay. let me just clarify it so um i'm going to talk about both connecticut and massachusetts and mm-hmm. so basically new england has been highly known for the slave trade um, a lot of people don't know that they built their own ships. So the Brown brothers in Rhode Island built ships and went down to the Caribbeans to get slaves. So did in Massachusetts um, and highly Connecticut. So um, one of my partners is not on here. His name is Jonathan Bryant from Connecticut. I'll stop there first. His family were slaves in, in Connecticut, and that's what we fight for him. Any 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 passages that we do, any bills, any resolutions, it's for Jonathan Bryant. His, he has documentation that his family was slaves in Connecticut from 1619, and his family still lives there. So um, in Massachusetts, we have um, we're the, the biggest abolitionist state. So slaves have been here from, from day one. Um, the Faneuil, um, Peter Faneuil and his uncle were slave traders and also slave owners. And Faneuil Hall, downtown Boston, is the number one slave port. And we're trying to get the name changed now. So we have had slaves in um, Boston from inception. Um, we've had slaves, be, as, as a matter be, be slaves, and then we also had them being indentured servants. And then we had the Great Migration. So a lot of people migrated north um, after Reconstruction through the Great Migration, and that's how some people got here. And then there was a second wave where people came just for, I'm saying, the, the pure work. So my family has been in Massachusetts since, well, Boston, actually, since 1940. And so I find that most of the people that I grew up with and most of the people that I talked to here are from Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama. Um, most of them are Southern-based, and they moved up north for better living, for, for jobs. Um, what we find now is that because we live in highly diverse communities, meaning New York, Boston, and, um, and Massachusetts, it's very hard to find out who our people are. And so we're meshed all together, so it's a black flatness. And so one of the things that when we do a reparations bill, which we want to clearly define, is that reparations is for the formerly enslaved, emancipated slaves. And so that's why I say it muddies the water. I'm not saying that the states don't owe anything. I'm just saying don't use reparations because reparations is at the federal level. So when we're trying to weed out and delineate our people from black immigrants or whomever other people that think that they classify as black or African-American, it's very difficult for us. It's extremely difficult, and it also creates divisiveness. We have a serious problem where people do not want us to get reparations or atonement just for being slaves. They everybody thinks that they are owed reparations because they're black, and that's not that's not true, and that's and that's not fair if you really think about it. So in Boston and in Connecticut, we make sure that the verbiage on any documentation so for any bills for reparations clearly says American freedmen, and American freedmen are those of the formerly emancipated slaves, and also people that were freed before. 
1865. However, those who came to America after 1865 with the Immigration Act aren't entitled to reparations. They weren't here. They didn't suffer 250 years of slavery. We're at zero dollars for labor. They didn't suffer the reconstruction, the great migration. They weren't here with civil rights. And so that's what the divisiveness is. And that's when we go to legislation. We have a hard time getting that, that information, that verbiage in because it's all Black Lives Matter. And so most of the people who migrated to up north from, from down south were, were descendants of slaves. And so people do not want to recognize that. So we're having a real hard time in New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, even Rhode Island. They gave reparations to white people and Indians. So that's what we face. And so when we say American freedmen, the reason why we do it is because that is the most legal name that we have that's written in congressional documents that protects us. And so if that's the case, then we need to be protected just like the Native Americans. We need to have our Freedmen's Bureau reactivated. We need to be have land. We need to have no paying taxes. We need free medical and free health care. There's no reason why our, our programs were dismantled in two years, from 1865 to 1867, when, when the Bureau of Indian Affairs is still in effect. It's the same concept. And so right now, because it's gone on so long, we're having such a hard time delineating or getting disaggregated data because no other black group wants that to happen. And that's where now knocking and Cobra come in. And that's where the pan-African ideology comes. They feel like we should all be repaired on a national global level from Af- all the way to Africa, all the black um, countries as well too. And it's not fair. They need to go back to their country of origin mm-hmm. and they need to fight and mm-hmm. they need to put a claim into their, um, their, their mm-hmm. colonizer. Well, let me, I- as a, and yeah. again, I'm, what, I'm, what I wanted us to do and wanted the time for yes. us to be able to get is our, our historical narrative of the yes. of this migration. And yes, thank you. You know, I so think the historical narrative for yeah. our people in Boston, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New England are they were originally here because they were slaves. They were yeah. here before slavery ended because they were made free through the abolitionists, and they also migrated with two different ways. And so people that are in Massachusetts, Boston, Rhode Island, Connecticut, I can't really speak too much for New York. We're right. here because of the great migration or we're here because they were slaves or indigenous servants. And I appreciate that. And, and, it, no sounds like, and it sounds like this is where, um, what's that, the genealogy um, process comes and be helpful for because everybody can be able to define. Um, that. But I, we'll come back. We'll come, we'll Most come back. people know. Yeah. Can I just say this real quick? Most arrive from and it's on their birth certificate you right. know that you're american freeman if, right. if your birth certificate says colored or negro right yeah you definitely know mm-hmm. um um for you Rashawn, um in the area that you're working in um the same question um and and I'm, and if it's okay elliot i want to go to i know we're, we're like moving into the second hour but i would like to um see how sister netta you know um conceptualize these different histories um and then you know if you don't mind then we can move you know, to what, what, how you see next we should move. But I wanted to, um, Brother Rashawn, how, how is the, um, for uh, your focusing in on Philadelphia, what is the historical narrative that connects um, Black Philadelphians to chattel slavery if it, or, uh, if to any degree? Philly is, Philly is weird because Philly has this narrative about being one of those places where um, abolitionist workers lived and many free black people were, but Philadelphia was monumental in the slave trade. Um, 1640s, uh, Africans and black people were enslaved in Philadelphia. The slave trade was pretty robust throughout Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. 
Uh, there were minimal free Negroes in Philadelphia, and there were multiple race riots in Philadelphia during the 1700s that many folks don't also have much conversation around. You had freed men, uh, free black people like James Fortin, who were monumental. You may have had your Benjamin Bannikers. You may have had your Prince Halls. You may have had a series of different black people during that 1770 time period, that American Revolution time period that were monumental in the establishment of Philadelphia and the United States. But you also had a series of black people that were also enslaved, which many weren't freed until what the late mid, I mean the mid 1800s. Um, refugees coming from the Haitian Revolution. You had Richard Allen and Absalom Jones established a free African society that provided mutual aid and a series of different services to freed blacks that were coming from the South and from all of these different places into Philadelphia. Um, then we get into well, the, the that migration time period uh, where my family didn't come into Philadelphia until like the 1960s. Um, and Philly is known for having a lot of free Negroes and welcoming a lot of free Negroes. Uh, I forget the sister's name before us. Uh, Philadelphia chapter completely agrees that it's really hard to even have a conversation around reparations where folks actually have cases from the nations and countries that they actually come from that need to have the litigation before they try to have any stake to claim to their experiences after the 19, after the 16, uh, the 1865 in the United States. But when folks did come here to Philadelphia, a lot of folks didn't even have the ability to job. 50% of Philadelphia was unable to get employment. And so the federal government actually had to step in to make sure that black people could actually get jobs. And much of what we've seen by Philadelphians is that they've done what they needed to do in order for them to create an economy for themselves. And when they did, they were met with a series of race riots also. And so when we look at reparations for black Philadelphians, we don't just look at these histories, but we also account for redlining because when my family came, just like many of family came, families came, they were redlined into communities. The war on poverty and the war on drugs struck black Philadelphians ex, you know, extremely hard, and the effects of that are still seen today, and a lot of folks continue to make fun of Philadelphia for having such a highly drug-trafficked community, um, ridiculous amounts of drugs in the city of Philadelphia. Um, but up until... Today, many folks that migrated from the South and were, that were already here are still in what people call an apartheid city. Okay, okay, and 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 um, we, we don't, unfortunately or fortunately, Sister Netta, um, as we deal with reparations, and you mentioned about you know using the UN definition and, and the reason I wanted everyone to be able to define their their specific histories um, in their location so that we can see a tie um, did you hear and that's I'm only asking you this because you're not representing you know a specific city going through the process or or a state going through the process but more in assisting in you know in, in the information and education and and coordination or facilitating aspect how did you um what did you hear in the histories from the northwest to the northeast 
through Central, and uh, we, we don't um, we don't have anybody directly from the South. Um, and I understand that your family is um, directly from. What did you hear as it relates to reparations and our our particular history? If you, if you don't mind me asking. Thank you for that question. What I heard was, can you all hear me? Did I come off mute? Yes, no, you are. So mm-hmm. what I heard, I, what I heard was an entire nation of Black America relocating in response to anti-Blackness, and everyone's story seems to be the same. To some extent, most people were enslaved in the Southern states, and they migrated north in search of to be human, to to gain access to some sort of civil rights, to gain access to some sort of idea of human rights. But as they relocated, what they found was the systemic and systematic racism still existed in that new, lake, new location, and they still had to navigate that space as well, which is why we're looking for reparations. So what I hear is, you know, I, I say this, you know, when people say, well, um, black Americans relocating from the south to the north from a, for a better opportunity is no different than someone relocating, let's say, from the Caribbean and or the continent. The difference is for me is, though, is that those of us that are descendants of Freeman, ADOS, SBA, we, um, we worked and we toyed this land and we built this country into what it is. So us relocating to get access to what is due to us, what is owed us, and what we have initially been a, been a part of initially is, is, is the difference. Additionally, I say, it's just think of it as the United States is one corporation. When you're in the South, you work at the Southern states, that location. You work at the Alabama location. You work at the Mississippi location. You work at the Georgia location. When you get up to New York City, Philadelphia, Minnesota, um, Massachusetts, you're still working for the same corporation, just in a new location, and the benefits may and may not be better. And, and the, the idea of black Americans feeling as though they have access, because industry changed over the time since we were enslaved as well, so they're gaining access to jobs where they can invest in themselves, but they're still being denied access to be, as you say, a true partner in what we call this American project. So again, what I hear is everyone's story is rooted in the enslavement of our people. Everyone's story is rooted in capitalism based on race as a um which was, was detrimental to us and each of us relocating throughout this country in order to shift and change that because we want to live and we want to be treated as true American citizens with access to civil and human rights. So that's what I heard. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Elliot, um, I just wanted to, you know, I thought it was important for us to set the basis that, um, you know, that reparations demand, and you keep hearing me say demand, is really like important for us to be able to understand that regardless of where we are, that we're we're working for the same demand. Um, and I'll just pass that over to you if you have, you know, from here. Uh, uh, Richard, you, uh, brother Kit didn't get an opportunity to. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize, brother Kit. I, and where, where are you? Where are you? And and th- don't let me don't let me lock you out there. Come on in here, brother. Give up that story. Are you there? I see he went off mic. Yeah, he's but, uh, he's unless he stepped away. Uh, yeah, he's there. Uh, he might have stepped away. I don't know. Did you? Did you? Uh, okay, uh, Richard, you. Um, uh, 
One of the other things you mentioned to me in, in the in the conversation prior to the program was about the uh, movement uh, being. Uh, did you want to go through that now, or you want to wait till oh, after the break? Yeah, yeah, I mean, if if it's okay, because I mean, and this again, um, you know, my my questions is trying to place us in a historical moment. If if I understand, uh, I think Brother uh, Pitt is coming back in. Yeah, uh, there he is. Okay. Uh, I apologize if I left you out, but um, uh, do you have a how did you describe the historical narrative of the people that um, in the area? Did he just leave again? Um, no, no, he's there. Um, for your area? Brother Kit? Oh, yes. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so, all right, so I'm in Connecticut, and um, oh, okay. the best way for me to under, uh, uh, put this is uh, follow my grandfather. My grandfather was born in 1919 uh, down in Georgia. And by the time he, uh, in by the time he's part of World War, uh, I believe that was World War One, that he uh, fought in, he uh, relocated back up to the Connecticut, and that's just on my mom's side, my dad's side. They're all from South Carolina, and they migrated up here uh, when my father was young. I, I, I think the big point of this is is that um, the migration patterns, like uh, Sis was saying earlier, was based off anti-black. Uh, uh, terrorism and uh focusing on that aspect within these different reparations collectives or trying to pin it down to a specific location is is kind of detrimental to the whole movement you know there's so much migration like you your family could wake up today and be facing ter- anti-black terrorism and, and it makes them pack up and go so i think we can't really focus on that because it just strips away all these people who should be eligible for these programs that are going to be ruled out because of terrorism, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, it makes sense. And 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 the migration, um, the the migration part, which ties us all to you know to chattel slavery. And 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 let me say, as a identifier, identifier, I would like to. Um, um, uh, you know, I, and I hadn't heard um, many of us say it, but I'm not one for uh, calling us slaves. We are an enslaved people. And I heard someone say, uh, it might have been Brother Rashawn, you know, as far as dealing with uh, Philadelphia, that we are a captive um, uh, um, nation, which raises the question, because that might be just a personal view of minds. But in this reparation moment, how do, and in the work that you do, and, and I'll, I'll start with you, um, Brother Kit. Um, how do you characterize this? Is this a, a national moment, of a nationalist moment, or is this a integrationist moment in our demand for reparation, as you said? And I would like everyone to respond to it if they feel comfortable with, the, with their response. Brother Kit, what, what, do you, what do you say? Is, it, is this a nationalist uh, moment? Or is this an integrationist moment? To be honest, I wouldn't classify it as either. I classify this as a specific moment, a moment where we specifically chose to look specifically at our lineage and specifically at our people. You know, nationalism denotes a lot of uh, attachments to the actual country. And I get that because we are black American. Our, Our ancestors' blood was here on this soil, you know. But at the same time, to, to connect it to a national mindset where we're 
uplifting America over the struggles America has put our ancestors through is not a not a correct connotation or connection. And then the other side of it, an integrationist moment, I would not call this that. This is this is us coming for a debt that is old, and, and I, I can't put it any more simple than that. Um, I, I have to, um, Sister Rose. What about you? Uh, is this and uh, you characterize this reparation moment? Is it a, a nationalist moment, and whatever that means to you, or integrationist moment? It's definitely a nationalist movement for me. Um, you know, I'm trying to definitely not integration, not integrational movement. Um, uh, we are at last delineating and disaggregating and saying no. Our our call is to repair only us, the descendants of of chattel slavery, or and the and the free the freedmen that were here even. Uh, before, if they were here before chattel slavery, um, we don't include anybody else in that. And I, I don't know whether nationalist is an apt description of it, but uh, um, I, I know I want us to be defined by our lineage back to freedmen freedom status and back to our chattel slavery roots uh, and sort of like forget all the other people that the ones that are called the tethers, the ones that were not here uh, uh, when my ancestors were enslaved or before. Um, yeah, so it's just us. And if that means nationalist, I guess that's what I, uh, I am. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, I'm just characterizing it in a moment. And Sister Edwards, how, how do you characterize this moment? Um, this I moment? definitely don't think it's integration. We tried that with the civil rights movement at the end. Martin Luther King um, did his last speech saying that he feels fear that he um, led his people into a burning building with integration. It has not worked. It's been 50-something years. We haven't done anything significant to protect our interests. This is pure survival. This is about erasure of our lineage, and it's a flat blackness, and it's just erasure, whitewashing who we were. They don't want to, you know, do black history in schools. They want they want to teach American history. They want to take out the slave history. They don't want us to delineate. They don't want to protect us. They want to bring in other groups like the Ukrainians, the Afghans, um, the people at the border, the, the migrants at the border. They want to give them reparations and resettlement agreements, and they want us to just get over it. So this is not even nationalist or integrationist. This is about pure survival. We have got to protect our interests. We should be equivalent to the Native Americans. We should have our own land. We should be tax-free, have free medical, and free education. We should, always should have. And, and, and Brother Adrian, because I'm aware, um, would, uh, do you have a, a thought in, in that characterization of nationalists uh, or integrationists? You know, I'm a... I'm going to extend this uh, answer to my brother Thomas because I, I really appreciate his perspective when we discuss these. Brother Thomas? Great. Uh-oh. Can you, uh, Brother Thomas, are you, I see you off mic. Are you? Okay. Able? Yeah, we do, we got muted again. Go ahead, Brother Thomas. Go ahead. All right. So, so I'm, I'm listening to what everyone is saying, and, and in my opinion, everything that we're talking about, if you really take a look at it, it's definitely from a nationalistic standpoint, right? We want to make sure on a nationalistic level that our people are being taken care of, those folks who came over on those ships, those folks who were Jim Crow. The other side of it is what we've been held back from is the integration into this country. 
not necessarily integrated into the count and into the, the lunch counters or into the businesses or into their schools. We have never been offered that American dream that everyone else who comes here actually gets offered. So that's a part of it. And a part of that is just independence into itself. So it is kind of a mixture of both when you really look at it. It's all in how you look at the term integration or you look at the nationalism. You don't want to be so surface in the conversation. You want to dig deeper. And thank you for that. And and you notice I'm not asking people for, um, you know, for a definition more than for people to give their expression of, of that. Um, what about you, um, Brother Rashawn? Um, this moment is, is how do you perceive the integrationist or a nationalist moment for, for reparations? Um, I think one of the gentlemen just said it's a, it's a moment. I wouldn't look at it as, I do see it as a nationalist moment for black nationalism, for our nationalism. Um, I do see it as more than a moment to be quite honest. I don't think that it's just a moment in time for the fact that what we're talking about is actual wealth for our legacies and our futures. So even if we're successful in getting financial reparations and getting a series of different systems changes and reforms, what we're going to need to do is make sure that our children are, are able to like keep it forward, keep it moving, keep it sustained. Um, I agree with the sister about what Native Americans and indigenous people were given. And one of the things that Native Americans and indigenous people don't have is international representation to the level that the international community can see the egregious crimes against their humanity that continue to take place in their reservations to make sure that folks can intervene and they can actually have access to other courtrooms to have their conversation because Congress is the end-all, be-all. So there's those nuances, too, to make sure that we can establish international courtrooms for us to take our grievances outside of just the United States jurisdiction. So... While I would say that this is very much a movement for black nationalism in some specific ways, I would also say it's way more than just a moment. It has to be something that we see as forever. And, and for for those who, um, especially out of Minnesota that I didn't get to, um, can you just come, come off your mic and, and, and answer the question for or help us um, you know, provide some support to that? Is there anybody... Did I miss anybody? That's what I'm going to say, other than Sister Netta. Um, and if I hadn't, um, Sister Netta, how do you see this moment? I see this as a national awakening. I see this as uh, Black Americans recognizing. So we just went through the historical context of how people arrive in their um, respective cities. We're all um, similar um, backgrounds, similar history, similar path forward. And if we think back to our grandparents that uh, migrated in the, um, during the second migration, can we honestly look back through our families that suffered through Jim Crow South, the segregated South, and or um, the, the first reconstruction and the enslavement and say that our position here in America has substantially improved? The system itself, the construct that um, enslaved us, that, you know, bottom caste still exists. So why, um, but I was, so why we would expect that our situation has changed? And that's one of the things we're responding to. We're saying no mas, no more. No, no and another thing that we're seeing is, again, although the United States has historically always been pro-immigration, we're seeing now with huge um, immigration from various different countries, whereas many people are using a black American plight and story to advocate for others and then um, still continuing to bottom cast us. We're responding to that. 
we're responding and saying, hey, 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 when do we get our piece of this? When are you going to pay the debt that is owed to us? When are we going to be reimbursed for the work that we've done with zero pay? When are we going to get our homestead acted specifically for us? So what we're looking for is specificity to help close the racial wealth gap, to help um, in all the socioeconomic areas in which we are disproportionately impacted in a negative way. And we're, uh, we have an awakening and we're fighting this and it's just in this on a national level. And I do like the way Brother Thomas put it together in terms of us looking into being integrated into the American fabric. So we're not looking to be have integration necessarily with others we're looking to say hey this is black america we cannot keep responding to white america and allowing white america to prosper while black america still remains bottom cast so we're looking to shift and change that and that's the awakening that i that i see thank you thank you um what do you what do you say elliot uh, uh as we move through this um do you you see we we've got a picture of the history we got a picture of you know these are and the, and and I want again y'all are, y'all don't know on time for awakening we um, uh, celebrate um, um, you know organizers um, we recognize um, regardless of the nuances that in each location that this is not no easy job um, the forces that exist um, the structural forces and even the forces within um, our own and own um, location or people, I should say, is not easy to get across, um, you know. And Elliot, you know, um, another question I, you know, would ask really, you know, based off of now getting a full breath of what is reparation, you know, how do we define it, um, you know, like where, how, who, who we even move from, um, how we, how we are entitled um, to this demand and even to who is eligible. And I'm wondering, you know, Elliot, to, to the point, you know, with our guests with how is difficult or easy to communicate this um, issue to black folks in our area? I, and I'm assuming in each area, um, the population and the means of getting information across in relationship to reparation may take different types of tools. And I was just wondering, um, um, do we have time to, for me to raise that or should I, should I wait in to another time? Uh, well, uh, you can raise it now. I'll, I'll go to a break and then that'll give people a chance to gather their thoughts. And then we come back and we'll continue the conversation. Okay. And if that's okay with everyone else, that, um, you know, that would, because I'm really, um, I hope for the time for awakening audience, you're really hearing, um, this here life commitment that people are making, not just for themselves or just for the communities that we're in, but for a people, a history of a people, um, you know, and, and, you know, and what we have to do in order to be able to, I heard somebody say to survive in this historical moment, um, and the future moments. So, now, um, now, now, before we before we go to break, Richard, put that question back on the table. What was that? The challenges that they face organizing in their localities? Yeah, yeah right. They're, they're communicating this reparation um, effort within the communities that they are organizing. What is that? What is that challenge? We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. You can get involved, too, by dialing 215-490-9832 with a question or comment. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with activists, organizers from around the U.S. for an intergenerational conversation about reparations. We'll be right back.
Awakening, Time for an Awakening, with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global you black family, to join your interconnected you black communities, Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his 
people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us? Or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Rath Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, Nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. For an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 842 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guests this evening, activists and organizers from around the country for an intergenerational conversation about reparations. (laughs) Wow, I don't know where I'm going with that. (laughs) But uh, let's go back. Uh, Richard. Yeah, you say, are you trying to get us into an interracial? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. And I wanted to, you know, the question I, I put on the table for us to, you know, to, to, to walk through, which would be interesting um, um, for us, because I take it everyone is using um, different tools and techniques in order to um, inform the community that they're in and be able to mobilize and organize in order to push their um, effort through. So I wanted to get some feedback of how are you um, going about to doing that, which possibly might be an opportunity for cross-fertilization of techniques or, or initiatives in, in order to speak to the black community specifically. 
Um, is there anybody who would like to start? I mean, and more than me, try to go to somebody um, in, in sharing um, how are you going about communicating to the community that you're representing? I see, Ms. Edwards, you raise your hand right quick. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to say this. It is the most difficult, challenging um, job to get people to believe in themselves first. Everybody, when I speak to them, I'm like, what's going on? Like, what do you need? You know, how can we get this together? We're looking for black leaders. We need a leader. We're looking for somebody like Martin Luther King. And I'm like, okay, there hasn't been a Martin Luther King since him. There's never going to be another Martin Luther King. You're your own leader. So I empower people to believe in themselves. And I empower people to get the civic and legislation knowledge so that they can champion for themselves. People seem to be in the... um mindset of instant gratification now everything's right now right now and if not you don't capture their attention then it's on to the next on to the next so james johnson and i have been community engaging on the ground i'm talking about events door to door you know passing off lives everywhere we have for the last three years and it's always a rotation of people in the community like you can't cap keeps their attention and so if you don't give them something immediately, if they don't see anything tangible, they just fall off. And it's very difficult to keep people involved and keep them encouraged um, because they don't see anything. They want money. They, they, I ask them, what do you want money? What would you do with the money? And they don't really have any broad spec 20-year, 30-year plan. It's like something instant gratification. I need that check now. People come up to us and say, cut the check. Where's our check? I mean, just that's all they're concerned about. But they don't understand that there's levels to this, and it's a process. And they have to believe in themselves, and they have to believe in us, and they have to believe in nationally for us to get together. We're not going to get this done unless we unite, and it's not going to be done overnight. So then, like, when I'm at the legislation office and I'm pitching a bill, I'm sitting in by myself. I look behind me. I don't see my American Freeman people behind me, but I still push forward because I know it's the best. It's in our best interest. It means a, it makes a profound difference when we have 40, 50 people standing there asking for the same thing. And a big thing that I encourage people, they don't see us American freedmen. They don't know us by American freedmen. How can we ask for something if we're not making ourselves known? Every other racial group is out there, you know, and, and droves. I'm saying representing itself, whether it be the LGBT, the women's group, the, the Afghans and that, and the, the Ukrainians, the, the people at the border. Where are we? In order for us to get the recognition, we have to present ourselves. And when you see somebody scrambling to fight for our cause, back them. I know like five or six people that work by themselves, like by themselves, pushing this narrative. And I have a real good team that I work with, Jonathan and James, and either we're doing things by ourselves or together. But technically, it's really only three of us to handle New England. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's unfounded. And we get stuff done. And so I'm not going to sit back and allow us to fail. But at the same time, it would really be nice to have 10 or 20 people standing on the sidelines or standing beside me cheering for American Freeman. And so this is the one thing that I have to tell people. I'm a very honest person, very bottom line. I'm a diehard person. I champion. I fight for my people. But I'm really kind of tired of doing it by myself. And I'm tired of being putting out fires every day. I'm on the phone all day. I'm on the phone all night. I'm running to different events every day. I'm putting flyers every day. You know what I'm saying I'm doing we're doing all this stuff. Where's everybody else? And so that's why it's very hard. And I know our people have been browbeaten. I know they're tired. I know they're worn. I know they don't have any um, faith in the system. But have faith in the people that are making strides. I have receipts. I produce bills. I have I have senators calling me and, and texting me on a Saturday. So I'm not just talking to talk. I'm walking the walk. And if you don't believe in me, then how can I believe in you? And why, why, why am I fighting for you? That's sometimes what I think. I'm like, why am I killing myself to fight for people that don't want to even back me? And I, I don't do this for me. 
I do this for the other generations. I'm 56 years old. I don't need education. I don't, I don't really care about land. I'm doing this for, my mom is 75. She doesn't really need it. I'm doing it for the pay, previous, the generations that are coming behind us. So at least pay us some homage and at least join the forces with us to make this happen. We, we have educational groups. We have, we give out books for free. We buy everything we come out of our pocket. We don't, we're not a 501 3C. Nobody donates to us. We do all this out of our pocket. We do everything we can to get people engaged and keep them educated. And I just really wish that people would respect the work that we're doing and stand beside us. Nothing's going to happen overnight. We're nationally collected. We tell, we tell people about what stuff is going to California, New York, Chicago. So it's not a joke. So this we, is real. Let me go to uh, 267. 267? 267? Hey, everybody. Um, yeah, so for the last two years, I've been co-chairing the Philadelphia chapter of Cobra. I've been like really silent because full disclosure and Cobra's had a lot of mess internally and the Philadelphia chapter has been like vehemently against a lot of that mess so in my youth I'm 28 years old I was strongly advised to just spend some time learning what I need to learn doing what I needed to do and since 2019 I've been organizing for reparations on my own under a different organization that I established myself um, with that I pretty much leveraged all the relationships that I had in the academic spaces and the grassroots community organizing spaces and the arts community because I'm also a disc jockey, like I said, and then a series of other communities that I've been doing a lot of work in to bring those folks into Encoba PHL as a vehicle to move their voices forward. And all of my work has been around moving the community's voices forward absent of my own because the job of the DJ is just to play other people's music. So with that being said, um, it hasn't necessarily been easy because we don't necessarily get support from the national chapter or haven't gotten support from the national chapter in some specific ways because it doesn't respect the values of many of the members of our community. And a lot of that grassroots organizing has been me doing what I've been doing since before I joined in Cobra. Now, fortunately, what we've been able to do is garner a lot of attention because we've been elevating the community's voices to have a platform for them to speak. And so we use reparations and its language to support things like the development of a recreational rehabilitation and restorative justice center in places in the place of prisons that folks are looking to redevelop. We use Encobra as a vehicle for us to talk about education reform in the city. We use Encobra as a vehicle for us to have a series of different nuanced conversations around record expungement and expungement clinics and all the things that black folks need. What that's actually allowed us to do is have folks understand community repair from their specific context and their specific lens. I'm working with a doula right now who can speak around mother mortality rates and why we need reparations work in hospitals. So anywhere black people are experts and professionals in whatever field, sector, or industry, I allow them to use reparations, reparatory justice, in context to how they can receive human rights, international rights, for the crimes that have been committed against their humanity in their sector. And I'm willing to make sure that anybody supported with any of those strategies, those systems, those processes, for how we make sure that folks know how to use reparations in their own accord for their own, I guess, area, industry, or sector that they do their professional, personal work in life. Uh, thank you, Brother Sean, for that, uh, uh, for the statement. Uh, let's go to, let's go up here to uh, Minneapolis. Uh, um, 
I think it's Brother Muhammad uh, right here. Uh, Brother Muhammad? Hello? Okay, go ahead, go ahead. We just had to unmute. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, thank you very much. All right, so for us, when it comes to, you know, how to raise awareness, particularly in our um, territory, uh, I start within our own community, the descendants of, of, of slavery, the freedmen here in Minnesota. And one of the biggest things that we're striving to encourage people to do is to stand on our history and our legacy. There's no need for us to seek external validation for our justice claim and, like, Socially, we've been kind of socialized to shed and shy away from talking boldly and loudly about our history, and especially in the context of reparation. And then the other thing that we have a challenge with dealing with up here is we have, um, you know, a plethora of what they call 501c3s in the state that are social service programs. And what they like to do up here is they'll throw out short-term uh, resources to, to make us think short-term instead of actually coming together with a comprehensive long-term strategy and creating systems that create long-term resource in order to begin to address some of the disparities that are the result of systemic slavery and, and um, oppression in this country. And so we don't think big, we think small, and we think, we think practical, and they divide us on those, those bases. And then, you know, next would be a fear of just having to fight. For a long time, every time we brought up reparations for a while, no one would want to actually talk about it exclusively for people who actually went through chattel slavery. It would always be in the context of some uh, BIPOC mystery box where people love to use our data, use our story, and then when there's resources handed down, we're literally barely receiving maybe 3% of anything that uh, is handed down. And, and more importantly, it doesn't address the justice claim whatsoever. So that leads me to the last point of us being grouped in and pulled into all different kinds of groups that borrow our legacy, borrow our history, and put us into all these multicultural lanes with people who do not fight for us. And at the end of the day, when we, especially on a policy level, we find that everybody's willing to look out for themselves and throw black folks under the bus. But when it's time for reciprocity, no one is left to be found. So for us, the main thing is making sure that we stick to our story. We stand on the facts and the data. We stand on the evidence of the history, and we don't compromise on that. And what we found is the our, our community members who are not plugged into the political scene and not plugged into the activist scene, our elders, they, they stand with us. And right now we're, we're starting to help people get their sea legs to, to, to stand on this particular subject and fight this fight. But the main thing is just making sure that we don't compromise on our history, our legacy, and the justice claim, and making sure people understand the functioning definition of reparations and the importance of not watering down reparations because that's the only context in which what we need actually makes sense so we don't get caught off guard with, you know, erroneous uh, conversations around constitutionality. But I'm going to park it there because I know my colleagues also would like to add to this point. Yeah, um, thank you for that, Nick, too, because I think you set the stage for how we, um, like I said, the perfect stage and how we, some of the challenges and some of the ways that we're addressing it. One of the things I'm going to elevate is that Black Civic Network up here for the past five, six years have always organized small spaces amongst our people who are descendants of chattel slavery to be able to raise awareness, to be, uh, create consciousness raising in terms of understanding the history of black folks here, our unique experience, and some of the disparities that we face living in these two cities, not twin cities, St. Paul and Minneapolis, but the twin two cities of a black 
um, Minnesota and white Minnesota and what those disparities look like in terms of social relationships and us being impacted by white supremacy, which has its rooted legacy in shadow slavery, the relationship between Minnesota and shadow slavery. So I think for us, we have a unique piece of being able to raise that historical awareness and consciousness and community advocacy to understand why reparative justice and reparations is connected to that unique history because Minnesota does a powerful propaganda in terms of creating this Minnesota knife. It creates this image across the nation that it's the most inviting, economically established state within the union. But the reality is that black people's unique experience, visceral experience, uh, tells a different narrative. So for us, it's doing that work amongst our people to help make sure that we're raising that consciousness and raising that awareness and drawing the connections. And one of the things that I've appreciated watching a men mass group, um, a men mass uh, media out in California and how they're doing different activities and keeping the camera and using the lens and using organizing spaces to chart and then put it, um, and put this stuff on content so that people can access that later. And that's one of the things that we're employing here and sort of really mounts up even more this year is creating a more media campaign so that way not only are we continuing our work in the community to raise consciousness, but we can actually start recording it and putting this stuff up in spaces so people can access that and have a conversation. Brother Thomas, did you want to chime in before we um, close out this uh, question? Oh, no, the only other thing I guess I could add is that the state of Minnesota, ironically, already has their own particular victims' reparations department without us even talking about reparations for chattel slavery. So the state already has that here. And so they already have the resemblance of, of, of some of the things that we're talking about as far as uh, the uh, five uh, key points uh, uh, with uh, the United Nations. So that's something that, that to also keep in mind here locally that we do have. Absolutely. Uh, uh, let's go to, uh, brother, uh, brother James, uh, maybe you want to uh, throw something in on that, uh, question that uh, brother Richard asked. Uh, can you guys hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. One of the big things, uh, I really want to get out there is that we've been trying to snake our way back into the federal because understanding that these state and local initiatives are, are really piecemeals and they're doing some of these programs are actually causing damage to the actual um, freedmen residents of these areas. We've really been trying to refocus everything to get back on the federal agenda and to try to get other organizations around the nation to, to actually sit down and construct strategies and call to action so that we can actually get back on the federal level. Every time a state or municipality decides to erect one of these reparations programs, they're usually going for about two years and, and, and to just continuously compile two years after another program's two years and another program's we are way better off utilizing our energy and resources to go right to the federal. It doesn't matter who's on board up there. It doesn't matter who's ignoring us up, up, up there. There's a whole congressional panel of Congress people up there that we should be utilizing our focuses for. We know the CBC is not going to rock with us. We know they're not on our side. We know that. That does not stop us from pushing forward. Federal is the way to go, and I think the the faster we understand and comprehend that, the 
easier it is for us to unify and to get these things done and, and to actually push this federal needle. But, you know, um, Brother James, and excuse me, Brother Elliot, um, I just I wanted to because I, I understand what you're the point that you're making and, and the importance of it. But um, so um, is there with that being true? How are uh, you seeing or doing in relationship to the community that that you're representing? And I'm going to look at you as a representative. How how do you communicate to those folks? Um, we've heard other in 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 Boston and in, in Twin City and in, in, in Minneapolis how they're going about it. How are you going about communicating of reparations in general to the in the community that you're recognizing the specific concern that you have? Well, one of the big things we've been doing out here, especially since we, you know, we go state to state out here, is we pass out um, Professor Darity's From Here to Equality. We give that for free directly to the community so that each individual that comes there has access to getting a free book that spells out a lot of the messaging that we want to take to the federal anyway, you know. And a lot of the challenges that we face from that is that we don't have that much uh, uh, cooperation from the public. We don't have that many people coming in and wanting to be a part of. You know, people will come grab books, people will come talk, but sustainability is one of the big problems we have there. So, yes, we find different ways, like the passing out of books, the passing out of flyers, having events at spaces, providing food and stuff like that. But the retention rate is very low. And uh, I think if we can create more opportunities for the community to understand and engage on the federal scale, they might put more stake into their political decision-making. Because as of right now, our people are wholly non-political. And this is us breaking that thread, breaking through there to, to, to show exactly where we want these energies to go when they come in. Does that answer your question? Sorry, yeah, yes, yeah, I mean, and I think that, that that is helpful as far as the books and the information that you provide in order and um, and do that. Um, so I just wanted to make sure we we get that approach. Um, let me let me ask a question to uh, uh, to all the folks on the that we have tonight, and um, uh, you can unmute if you want to answer the question uh, because I've heard several people on the panel tonight talk about um, dealing with this on a federal level instead of on a state level. So when you see, when we see, I don't know if you, when we see, hold, hold on a second, let me, uh, when we see um, the states getting involved, uh, wanting to push reparations in their particular states, localities talking about pushing it in their particular localities, universities talking about, we want to give reparations to people that we kept enslaved at our particular universities. When you see these strategies coming up, where do you think that they're coming from? Just in your opinion, and let's keep it short because I want to kind of get everybody's feedback on this. Whose strategies is this when you see these things popping up? Um, so, you go, oh, James. Okay, I'm 
going to say um, real quick, when I see these little programs popping up in these municipalities, creating these uh, legislations and stuff like that, you can just tell from the writing that they're uninformed. They're not coming from a grassroots perspective. They're usually pan-African is tied, which is at this point also Narcan and Cobra tied, you know. And these are the people going around and causing these legislative pieces to be brought up. But that's not from the people. That's not from the grassroots. That's not from anybody who's informed. And also to answer your other question about the, the institutions and the the churches and the schools, they can create a super fund, okay? They can create a super fund where they put all of this money into that's supposed to be, you know, a collaboration with the federal lineage-based reparations. They don't need to go and continue to keep doing these piecemeal efforts that's not really doing anything major. It's it's like they just want an opportunity to say they de- they've done something or they've, they've, they've no, tried no. their hand at something, but those those are not effective measures. If they wanted to actually make something effective of those resources, they will pull it into a super fund, just how it's laid out and from here to equality. Well, and I want, when everybody answers, I just want us to stay focused on the particular question I'm asking because it'll dovetail into another question that I want to put on the table about who do you think these strategies are coming from? Keep in mind okay. that we're powerless in this country, and we've always mm-hmm. been powerless, politically powerless to a degree. Our, poli- our so, politicians, hold on a second, our politicians operate on a basis of what, how they're instructed by their uh, European handlers. So, again, where do you think these strategies are coming from? So I'm going to be honest with you and only from lived experience. It's not going to Cobra. Evanston is not going to Cobra. Boston is not going to Cobra. The one in Maryland was not going to Cobra. And Mr. Arthur Ward is a not going to Cobra guru. He can tell you everything about it. I've sat in meetings with not going to Cobra, Pan-Africans who think that they're more intelligent, more versed and more scholarly than we are to talk about reparations. So so I've been in the room with them. All right. So So it's it's not going to Cobra. Okay, good. All right. Let's. uh... Can I, can I speak? I'm from Evanston. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, thank you, Antonia, for speaking uh, on this on this topic, and thank you for asking this question. Evanston is a a very exotic animal uh, uh, among all of the municipalities and the and the states and cities that have been talking uh, here. We have literally been invaded by Narcan and Cobra and First Repair and Cam Howard and this group. Okay, so that's, and they that's, have their wait, wait, wait a minute, in, wait a minute, our, hold on, city. hold on a second. So the answer is Narcan and Cobra. See, I don't, I don't, I'm doing this for the sake of time because I want to try to cover as many questions as we can. And the answer is Narcan and Cobra. For our city, it is. Okay. For our city. All right. Uh, Um, And you, and the, and the second part of your question was, why do you think these institutions like the universities and so forth are coming forward? No, I just said, Um, where are these strategies coming from? They're all, they were all, together in what I was saying. Okay. 
they're, they, these are the white supremacists. We have white supremacists in our city who are multimillionaires who are funding this false reparation program out of their pockets. And essentially, it's to get in front of, of, of the reparations demand that our people are making. It's to, in some way, block it. That's the only thing that we can, that's the only way that we can describe it. It's, it's, it's white supremacists uh, blocking their getting out in front of us because I think they fear that what we're going to demand is too much. Okay, good. So. All right. So I, I just want to, Richard, I want you to keep a tally of what it's, it's not any Cobra and the sister just mentioned white supremacists. Okay. And please keep yes. your, keep, keep your mics muted until uh, you unmute because it's causing interference on the air. Uh, okay. The sister mentioned white supremacists and Narcan and Cobra. Because I want to come back around to this. Um, I think we covered Brother James, yeah. Brother oh, okay. Sister Rose. Well, we covered Sister Antonia. Uh, let's go to Sister Netta and get her um, opinion on some of these strategies and where they might be coming from. Sister Netta? Mm. Sister I think Netta? she had to go out and come back in. Is she still? Okay, well, let's... let's that's all 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 on her. Uh, oh, brother, brother, um, brother. Can you all hear me? Oh, there you go. Yes. No, yes. So, um, I think, and 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 it's it's, it's come to my attention that uh, not all of the state actual atonement and or reparations movement are being um, supported by or led by Narkin and Cobra. I think um, it's my understanding that in many places, and I think um, St. Paul can speak to this, those are uh, Americans within the shadow slavery that led to charge there. Um, the brothers, uh, we have Adrian, Brother Muhammad, and Brother Thomas, or Brother Nick, those are Americans within the shadow slavery that are leading the charge there. However, I will say that we do see that various different other jurisdictions that um, – we see the legacy organizations that are jumping in, and we also see some of the upper-middle-class black, um, some people refer to them as the boule, um, but I, I think they use that term incorrectly, that are also leading the charge. So what I think what's happening is that reparations, because of all the work that the grassroots are putting in, reparations has become a, bu- a buzzword. It's become very trendy. So now any and everybody that wants to uphold this construct Anybody and everybody that wants to support an idea of just providing black Americans with some sort of symbolism and or some sort of um, a little bit of satisfaction is jumping in in order to um, for their own self-serving reasons in some cases. However, I do believe, as we've all many of us are supporting what's happening out in California. Many of us are supporting what's happening in Minnesota. Many of us have jumped in behind to support Boston as well. And I think what we need to do is in those places, in the spaces in which we feel that there's a grip or our movement is being hijacked for people that have moving in malice and sense, we need to take the charge there. We need to either stop it, correct it, or um, what else we can come to, whatever, whatever other conclusion we can come to as a collective. So I caution us to definitely remain vigilant. Definitely be on the lookout for those that are moving with malice intent, that are definitely trying to hijack for their own to uphold the construct to keep us bottom cast 
and just providing us with some sort of, they're going to use the term reparations, but it's actually some sort of social services on steroids in which they benefit from monetarily. Okay, so okay. we definitely need to target those and stop those. But for those that are not, I think we should be in support of and help them get across the finish line. So what I heard was legacy organizations. Uh, um, Brother Nick um, Elliott also had, and, and Sister um, Netta made reference to it. So, um, a view. I'll say it right away. Wait a minute. Say, uh, okay. Brother, um, Sister, um, she said legacy. She added legacy organizations um, as a you know to answer the question that you raised, and also said that um, Brother Nick from um, Twin Cities also have. Uh, a view in relationship to the question that you asked. Okay. Uh, uh, I think that's here. Hey, Brother Nick. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I definitely agree with the view of not allowing um, certain legacy organizations who haven't actually been uh, active for, you know, 10 to 20 years to come in and steer us back to, you know, a melancholy, uh, unproductive disposition. But I also want to make sure that we're not just throwing the baby out with the bathwater and generalizing um, all of the movements that have a local uh, initiative. You know, I've been an organizer for almost 20 years uh, here in Minnesota. And one of the things that I think we have to keep in mind, especially when we're talking about a national movement, in order for us to actually have a successful national movement, we've got to keep in mind the math that we're looking at. So if we have 100 members in the U.S. Senate and 435 con- congressional people in the House, outside of an act of a stroke of a president's pen with an executive order, we will have to have several local national um, initiatives that create a ruling system across the country in order for us to create adequate pressure inside of a federal movement in the Congress. So it doesn't make any sense for us to act as if we're going to go straight to D.C. and get things done. We're not a, a well-funded group with lobbyists that are going to be able to land on each Congress congressional member or a U.S. Senate member and make sure that they're, they're doing our bidding. The best and most strategic way to approach it is to make sure that we have localities and a statewide national rooting system of local efforts. Now, I will say if, if at some point we should probably have a meeting of people from different areas and create our own type of um, commission on a national scale where we bring our ideas together, build our national agenda, but we're going to need a ruling system in order to create uh, pressure to make sure that the bill and whatever effort that we put forth has actually had a, a solid chance of being passed. So on our level, we're not led by NCOBA or anybody else. We'd be more than happy to build with people who want to know how long we've been building and what we, we've built and, and how our Descendants of Slavery chapter got started. We literally are, I was born in Indianola, Mississippi, so let's get that out front. I was born in Sunflower County in the, in the cradle of, of, of slavery in Mississippi. That's my lineage. No one had to put a battery in my back. I had to sit back and listen to my grandfather talk about, you know, Frank being lynched at 12, my mother and father picking cotton all the way up into the 60s. So let's, let's, let's be, you know, more open-minded about who's actually online. Everybody is not doing a money grab. Now, the reality is there has to be a system constructed anyway for us to make sure that we're receiving all of those five particular principles, and we need a strategy to be able to put pressure on these legislators that we want to move our way. If we don't have local initiatives, 
we're not going to be able to make the legislators on a federal level pay attention to us. This whole thing boils down to are you a constituent of the congressional or Senate member that you're going to be targeting with this bill? If you do not live where they are governing, who elects them, they will not care what you bring to them. So the more people we have on a national level that are actually connected to the people we're talking to on a federal level, the more effective we will be. Trying to go straight to the Fed is trying to grow a tree without having national roots. And I think we just need to keep that in mind. Can I just make a quick statement, Richard, if you don't mind? Uh, hold on, Sister Antonio, because there's some other folks that haven't had a chance to answer. Uh, Richard? No, I was just going to say the same thing. For people to be able to answer the question. Uh, let's go to uh, 267. 267, uh, Brother Rashad. I think that anybody who's pushing reparations is not been uh, valid in the streets to the community see an opportunity for themselves in spite of the people that reparations is for. Um, I think that people should actually actively revoke, dismiss, refuse, fight against any reparations policies that are proposed or anything proposed that don't represent the majority of the people. I think that any reparations legislation that doesn't have an, a people-appointed board or an electoral process where the commissioners and task force members are members of the descendant group that shouldn't exist. Um, I'm going to take this time and this opportunity to say that Sister Kenneth, and Brother Willard Lett, the new co-chairs of Encobra, y'all got to speak very soon. I've said it to y'all personally, and now that I'm here publicly, I mean, the fact that I'm beating y'all to the public, which I've tried my best not to, y'all have to speak to the public and make amends and atone for the previous co-chairs because the nation of reparationists are upset, and there's nothing that any reparationist can do with the previous works being in the way. So y'all really got to do that. Um, and I would say that some of the barriers um, that we have in the city are just being able to mobilize folks because it's kind of like ground zero. There's so much crime and so much poverty and so much trauma in the city that um, there's, there's a reason why folks are jumping on it because there's such a need for it. At the same time, it's extremely hard. Politicians are in re-election right now, so a lot of folks are jumping on it. But fortunately, we have relationships with folks from my organizing since before they were politicians where – they see a benefit just to this work, and they trust me. Uh, but that's what I would share. Uh, Richard, I think uh, everybody seemed to have uh, – I don't think I missed anybody to get them to answer that particular question. Um, the reason I asked that is because I think that – and this is my opinion – uh, as a host, and I want to get Brother Richard to weigh in on this, and then uh, we can go around. I think that we have to realize as a people and get our people to understand this clearly. And some of the organizers have mentioned this. Uh, Sister Antonia in particular had mentioned it, that when she goes out among our people, it's difficult to get them to focus, and when she does all they want is give me my check, give me my money, if I'm not mistaken. It's a lot yes. of reasons. Good. It's a lot of reasons for that. One of the main reasons 
is that we have to understand as a people that we're colonized. We are colonized people. We might not want to admit it. We might not think that we are, but we are colonized. And I'll read a brief definition of uh, 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 colonialism, just in case we might not be aware. The practice or policy of control by one people or power over another people or area, often by establishing colonies and generally with the aim of economic dominance. In the process, the colonization or colonizers may impose their religion, their language, their economics, and their cultural practices on the colony. So I think by that definition alone, we have to admit that we're a colonized people. Our values isn't from our ancestors. Our language is definitely not from our ancestors. We're not English, but we speak it. Our culture is mingled in with European values. So when this thing comes up for justice for our people in reference to the abuse and atrocities of our ancestors, and you hear all kind of crazy comments coming up like, give me my check, or what the brothers and sisters did out there in California when they got that Bruce's Beach back and then turn around and sold it right back to Europeans a couple of months later. When you see that type of behavior, we know what it is. And it's a challenge for us all. I don't think personally that we need to be sniping at one another because all of us and the ones that don't will be exposed. But all of us want justice for our people, for the abuse of our ancestors. We su- we supposed to be unifying to make these people feel the pain. These Europeans, English. See, some of these Europeans wasn't heavily involved in transporting our ancestors as others. The Spanish, the Portuguese, the English, the Germans. They were heavily involved. Some of these other Europeans like uh, 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 the Irish and all that didn't have the finances to do it. They helped abuse our people, but they might not have been heavily involved in the transportation of our people. Some of these Europeans were heavily involved on both the continent and in these in the islands and in the United States. We need to be organized to make them feel pain. We don't need to be sniping and bickering among our, ourselves because they're laughing at this. And then they'll come up with little strategies to keep separating our people and then using some of our people to help them perpetrate these strategies. So we have to be wiser than them. We have to organize. And we also have to, to remind ourselves that it's a good chance that whatever we come up with as a people is going to be refused and balked at by this so-called dominant society. So we have to have a plan B as a people. We can't just be sitting there twiddling our thumbs when these people go thumbs down to whatever we demand. So I just wanted to throw that out there because it's a lot of things going on around this reparations movement. Whites in general never even talked about reparations until this last election cycle. I ain't talking about this one that they just did. I'm talking about the one when Biden and them was running for president. All of a sudden you hear all these whites and white politicians talking about reparations. Never talked about it before. Never cared about it before. 
Oh, they have a strategy, believe me. And they might be using black people, but it ain't have nothing to do. Their strategies have nothing to do with NARC and COBRA or any other black groups that's, that, uh, that act like they're fighting for reparations. Believe me, these white folks have a strategy. They study our people. They've always studied our people. We don't study them. We don't spend a lot of time studying them. Richard, I just want to make that comment. Uh, jump in here. No, I, I just I agree I agree with you, and I I mean, Elliot, when I'm and and to the to the rest of you, I, I just want to make sure everyone reinforces that we're 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 having this conversation because we recognize the great work that you're doing, um, and I think that what Elliot is 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 you know what they call you know elevating is that we have to create, and it's been brought out in this discussion here amongst us tonight. We have to create the fortification this time um, differently and more powerful because these guys, and I, I agree with you, Elliot. I, I mean, these, I mean, in Philadelphia, you, you can't imagine, y'all, the, the, the historical societies are coming up with black, um, never touched it before. Now all of a sudden <laughs> they, they, they're, and they're getting, they're getting grant money to be able to present historical narratives of black people and doing, and they'll say slavery, not doing enslavement. They'll say slavery, the historical white churches, same thing. And it's like all of a sudden, I think that that's the point that you're raising, Elliot, that is just happening all of a sudden that even at the congressional level, you hear this person or that person, or even at the electoral level, at, at the local level. We have to be um, have a healthy skepticism of the work that you've created in this moment in order to most effectively organize. That's that's my contribution too. I don't I don't want to. <clears throat> I think that the the dialogue we've had has been like really helpful. Hopefully to the yes. time for waking audience. Yes, I think that um, getting to know um, what is going on in in every. In these different cities, and I hope that that you'll see that the Time for Awakening um, platform um, can be a vehicle to assist and continue to have the dialogue to assist in in communicating to folks um, in, in your area um, how important this reparation moment is. Um, I heard somebody say to our survival. Yes. So I, I just I think that that's just what I would emphasize. And, and going along with what you're saying, Elliot, because these guys are these guys, meaning whoever this. And I hate, I hate, I hate. As one brother says on Club, I hate boogeymen. Right? I hate us talking about them and and they. And the only one we could talk give names to is the people who is in front of us. I hate that because they do have ten million dollars. They do have billion dollar endowments, and they do. Um, organized politically um, and to even to run black candidates. And these candidates are, are the ones that we need in order to push this legislation. But, but we need to organize our people and we know how difficult that is. Uh, I, I don't mean, I don't mean to, um, um, to go off, you know, in that, but I, I think that <clears throat> that's what, um, why this is so important. And I hope that y'all think that this moment was important to, to have this exchange. And let me go. So we had a couple of uh, let, let's go to Newport News. Newport News. 
Hey, you know, I'm probably not in the area to be able to talk. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, let's go to Toronto. 647-647. Toronto. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Can you? Oh, uh, yeah. How are you doing? Great. I wanted, I wanted to say that in terms of this whole reparations movement, uh, you know, Oscar Brown Jr. out of, uh, I think his folks came out of Arkansas, but he was born in Chicago, and his father had a movement called the 49th State Movement, uh, trying to set up a, a, a state for black for black people 100 years, not 100 years ago, but quite a while ago. He wrote the song called uh, 40 Acres and a Mule. Then you had uh, Prince, who was from Minnesota. Uh, he covered When Will We Be Paid. I think that was done by the staple singers first. Uh, but I basically wanted to know, it, it, uh, is there any relationship with any of the organizations that are on this show and the CARICOM group, I know it's a Caribbean group, but is there any way uh, that it could be coordinated that those two entities could help one another if we come together as uh and I believe in the specific specificity or, or the, the, you know what I'm trying to say, the specific situation. But I think it's also important that we have uh, uh, a national and pan-African, not necessarily pan-African, but uh, Western Hemisphere, uh, as well as pan-African uh, links. And the whole question of hooking up with, with CARICOM and CARICOM, uh, the Caribbean uh, uh Common Market, it's, 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 it's an organization. I think your li- listeners know what I'm talking about. Is there any 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 uh, thoughts of, uh, you know, uh, on a issue-by-issue relationship, issue-by-issue uh, situation uniting with them around specific uh, issues? Well, I, listen, I think that's why we're having this conversation tonight. To, to make, uh, and just like the sister mentioned uh, 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 out of New York, Netta, to make people aware of all of the fights going on centering around justice for our people in reference to the abuse and atrocities of our ancestors. Uh, so uh, I'm quite sure that, that the everybody online is aware of all of the organizations, whether it's CARICOM uh, and COBRA, whatever, they're aware of these organizations, so, and that's one reason why we're having this discussion tonight, so we can start bringing things a little bit closer. Uh, Brother Keedy put in the chat room about um, uh, uh, Brother Kit. Uh, Kit, I'm sorry. I keep saying Keedy. Uh, never in American history have we had 100% of our people on board in the movements of our ancestor, and I agree totally with what he's saying, but we do need a critical mass in anything that we're doing. Right. Uh, uh, whether it's 10 out of a city, uh, two out of a uh, uh, locality, we do need a critical mass to be on board and on the same page or at least having the same goal. And and we have we have blueprints and, and uh, discussions of our ancestors and what they did, because these are not new discussions. And I'm quite sure everybody's aware of it because everybody seems to be aware of our history here. So these discussions that we're having tonight, are not new among our ancestors. So, you know, we, we just, uh, the struggle continues, and we're going to keep pushing forward to uh, achieve what we need to. 
Thanks for your Sorry, man, I say something. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Thanks for your contribution, brother. Yes, sir. Uh, Arthur Ward out of Chicago. Arthur? Yes, how are you, sir? Good. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to bullet point it. Uh, first of all, we don't need Caricom. Any we don't need to spend any energy outside of the United States to deal with our reparations, our very domestic reparations issue. We have too many Caribbeans and, and Africans involved with it in in the in the country now, and they are part of the group. Can we organize our people and um, to be in alignment to what we're trying to do? Yes, sir. I, I just mean, didn't want anybody. I, 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 just I, didn't just want, I don't want this moment. We'll we'll if y'all allow, we'll have further. Discussion, okay. and if y'all allow, but I don't yes, want I don't want this to de- to devolve into a strategy session, okay. and and the, and the question about the strategy among or the different tactics and strategies mm-hmm. more than the understanding, especially for the time for wait. But brother Tahern, is that uh, am I saying his name right? Are you there? Because I w- I wanted to make I. I I was brought to my attention that I, uh, we may have over overlooked you, so I didn't want to do that. Um, um, so I, I'll, I'll do that. But I, I think you're back now, Elliot. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Elliot had a, a a communication moment. So, um, but I, I I think that we have Elliot. I think that we have, and hopefully everyone thought that this has been um, fruitful, um, beneficial. Um, and we we have got something out of it, and more importantly, I hope that you you would look to um, using this platform again to continue to flush out not for us we know what we're doing, but for the community at general to know what we're doing is what we would like, and to be able to, to cross fertilize tactics and strategies um, that you not what you do offline, which we shouldn't have in the public, but what you what we can share with the public in order to identify people to understand, though it may be hard work for those who see that this is their life work. And we know black folks are suffering. We need your support in order to move this forward, to take advantage of this moment. I just wanted to, you know, um, say, uh, say that I think that we're, you know, this Elliot, if you, if you would agree that um, this moment is uh, we're we're kind of like at the peak now of this exchange um, before we go into another area, which, uh, um, Sister Netta, I want to give you all the props for helping us be able to stay together. Um, and, and, you know, and I hope that y'all will continue to be able to, you know, um, work, we be able to work together, um, and, and in order to overcome whatever things we have to or continue to build on the things we need. Are you there, Brother Elliot? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to say that as we, I, I move move towards closure. Yeah, you know, um, and I want to thank everybody for being on tonight with us because this is how we, just like uh, Brother uh, Kit mentioned in, in the chat room, this is how we develop that critical mass. Because if we look, listen, we don't have uh, black media that can be utilized by the population of black people, grassroots, however you want to call it, because these discussions are not going to be had, and I don't want to throw no stones at nobody, but these discussions are not going to be had on Shopton 
or, 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 uh, or uh, uh, Roland Martin or, or, or some of these other programs. They're not having them. They're not going to have them. We're going to have to use other sources, similar to what our ancestors did when we were enslaved, other sources to get messages out, to communicate, to have communication between one another. And hopefully this, this vehicle here is a method of communication for all of us. We need to develop strategies among us all because we're all in this pot together. We're here. And we're right in the belly of the beast and we're dealing with this. We have to come up with strategies ourselves to free our people. So I just wanted to again mention that. Thank everybody for being on. I look forward to future conversations. I want to thank Sister Netta and all of the people. Sister Antonia out of, out of Boston, uh, Brother Kit, uh, uh, the, the brothers out of, of, of uh, Minnesota, Brother Muhammad, uh, uh, Brother Adrian, Brother Tahern, uh, all of you brothers and sisters, uh, uh, Sister Rose out of Evanston for your participation tonight, and I just want to thank you. Richard? Yes, yes. I think that we um, we we're we're ready to to move to our closure. Um, and again, thank everybody for um, their participation. Sister Nettie, are you can, are you still with us? I think she's still here. I think she is. Maybe she dropped uh, off. Yeah, is this um, her? That's her. Hey, Brother Elliot. Yes, sir. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Where are you? I just heard you. Where are you? I think she just dropped. Somebody, uh, Newport News? Yes, sir. Brother Elliot. Yes. I was just going to interject in here. I see several people. You know, I've been in the movement a long time. I know your history with the work. But I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, several of the people that are in this chat, when we come back, we ought to have a, a conversation because we shared about a month and a half ago, two hours, talking directly with Cam Howard in the group that he was in. And so some of these positions are not just speculation. It's straight from the lips of Cam Howard. Oh, I'm not saying I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that anybody is wrong or what they talk, talk oh, about. Oh no, I, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying to you that I, I just happened across it, and and these people have been doing the work, and they've literally been on the ground with Cam. But I listened in to about a two two hour exchange with him before he started this national tour, and I think it'll be interesting. As a matter of fact, I also put uh, to show you how movements. Um, develop. I put some comments in there from a noted person that you know, Professor Gerald Horn. He shows surprise and shock that uh, Ron Daniels, Don Rojas, Paul Scott, and Bill Fletcher have signed on to this new thing called Solidarity with Ukraine. Look it up. But I put the link in there so you can hear it straight from uh, Professor Horn, that you, you know, as movements move on, you find out. Sunlight brings answers. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Love the work you're doing. And listen, before you go, uh, 
before you go, let me say this because uh, I don't I don't know whether uh, some of the other folks that are on tonight listen to the program. Uh, you're very well aware that we've had. We did se- listen to the program. Oh, oh yeah, no, okay, no problem. You, you're very well aware that we've had several of these folks on uh, talking about this issue. Uh, Professor Darity has been on on multiple occasions. Cam Howard has been on on multiple occasions. Several of the people that uh, are in the forefront of this have been on on multiple occasions. So the, the, the way all of these people, I don't care who it is, the way all of these people are going to be exposed is by the work that is constantly being done by people that are working. That's why I have admiration and respect for people that are activists. It's hard work getting out here trying to organize people. An organizer and an activist is doing something that the Almighty wants. This is how people are going to be rallied. Well, to be honest with you, Brother uh, Elliot, that's exactly what I'm saying to you, that we have to be accountable for our actions and hold other people accountable. As a matter of fact, you know, we go far back to when I started in that, as Jared Ball calls it, the hashtag group. When you find out people aren't on the course that they should be, you separate and you keep on with the mission. I'm in for the justice claim. So I don't have a problem with humans falter. I got to stay true to beliefs and what the truth prevails. Thank you for your contribution. Uh, Richard, I think Cincinnati is still on. Cincinnati? Yes, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, Rich, I think Richard. Had, yes. I, I just wanted you to, to, to help um, round us out and, you know, um, move towards closing out of our discussion if you have any thoughts, views, or perspective that you have to uh, add. May I ask a question? Well, yeah, I just wanted, okay, I wanted to um, thank um, you, Brother Richard and Brother Elliot, for providing us with the opportunity for the opportunity to come on and to um, hopefully your audience um, was able to learn um, something from here. I'd like to thank all those that participated. I appreciate them coming out. Sister Antonia, the work you're doing up in Boston and um, in Connecticut, um, all the work that you're doing, the fact that you um, had to come out and, and single-handedly get a lot done and extend your services to assist all others across the nation, the way you um, engage with those brothers up in Minnesota and offer to assist them, to the brothers up in Minnesota, both the um, the, the Twin Cities, and um, Trey Hearn up in um, St. Paul. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. And, and, and that goes out to those that aren't on a call, to um, I'm forgetting, um, Brother Rashawn, um, the work that you're doing. You're young. I'm so glad that you're activated, you're engaged. And um, I would love to work with you and figure out how we can get more youth to um, get behind you and how it is that you were able to be successful because I think that's what we need to ch- um, we need to target. We need to get more and more youth engaged. So, again, this is intergenerational. We have various different people that are in this movement. We're dedicated, and we're working hard for our answers, and I think each and every one of you that's on this call, that's listening to all of you that participated for all the work that you do, it's the saying that we've been saying, we got us and we all we got, and I'll say peace, power, and reparations to all of us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution, sister. Uh, sister Antonia, you wanted to say something before we wind it up? Yes, I got. I think I got it out. I just didn't want the brothers from Minnesota to think that I was making any.
these statement negative towards them. I had heard them in the um, clubhouse, and I commend them for their work that's been done. I'm I wasn't talking about their particular efforts because I know through net what they were doing. I'm talking about the concerted efforts from New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Amherst, um, also from um, Maryland. Um, all those were concerted efforts that Narcan and Cobra initiated those reparation acts, and oh, I know okay. that to be true. So that's what all I was right. speaking at. And I don't want anybody to leave here feeling disparaged by me because that's not who I am. I had already offered my services to him. I just want to make one good point that wasn't brought up tonight other than what Mr. Arthur said, and I don't know if you heard him. These are all distractions, the ones that are done by Narcan and Cobra, because okay. they're working on getting an executive order right. for yes. HR 40 yes, we, behind the scenes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. We'll, we'll talk so, about that at another time. Uh, okay, thing, I just want to get that a, out there that he's okay. trying to get this done now, like right. right now, trying to get it done. And I just want to make people make sure people don't take their eyes off of that, because on right. any day he can ask for an executive order with Biden for HR 40 that doesn't represent us who descend from shadow slavery. All I right. want people not to miss that mark. Thank you for your contribution. Bridget. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We are. I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I just don't have, um, I don't, I wanted to leave us from an organizing on an upbeat and the upbeat being that our people need us. Yeah, um, Sister Ned always tell me she, she liked this quote. Our, 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 um, what is that? Misery index is high. You know, the people who go into the laundromat, they go to the chicken wing store, you know, that, that struggles with their elderly or their children. Um, with not enough. What we're saying, though, it's important, gravely important, and a support, what they're dealing with on the day-to-day um, is beyond this. And so that's why it's important with what you're doing because it's to try to provide some um, relief, but it's also a competitive. And for me, these white boys ain't playing either. And they put out, they put out oh, big money and that money ain't coming to us. They putting out big money saying it's for us. And it ain't coming to us. So I just, you know, uh, I just want to once again commend what y'all doing and, and, and leave it at that. Uh, you know, um, before we go, Richard, I, um, I just want to, uh, to share, uh, something with the listening audience in reference to the conversation tonight. And it's in reference in more ways than one, as far as I'm concerned, because it kind of reflects back to some of the discussions that our ancestors had in references to our plight and how we should move. Uh, When I mentioned earlier about us being a colonized people, you, there's a lot of our people that feel as though that we're not and that we're, we're free and that we're citizens. And in a lot of respects, that's true. Black people do consider themselves citizens of this country. But I think that we have to realize and be honest with ourselves that the overwhelming white society and white majority don't really look at you as a full citizen. They never did. Let me, I want to read this, uh, something that was uh, something by W.E.B. Du Bois and something by Frederick Douglass in reference to our plight. 
But first, I want to play a brief clip. It's two minutes. Uh, it might be less than that about King. And, and, and we didn't do it last week, but it's never too late to share perspective because we see that these folks now want to do draw new narratives of any of any of our people that was in the struggle. I was watching the NBA game the on Dr. King Day and they interviewed several players, you know, with little clips in between the commercials about what they felt about Dr. King. And several of them said that he felt fought for all people and uh, they were so proud that he fought for all people. Well, that's the narrative that European society want to put out about King. But let me play what he said in reference to what he was doing. And then I want to read a statement before we wind it down from uh, two of our ancestors. This is a statement in what Dr. King said that they were fighting for. Dr. King, this church is as good a place as any to go back over your commitment to the civil rights movement. When you went out from here into university and then you went to Montgomery, Alabama and started the bus boycotts there, what was the philosophy of the civil rights movement as you saw it then, more than 10 years ago? Well, I would say then the philosophy was that we must go all out to use legal and nonviolent methods to gain full citizenship rights uh, for the Negro people of our country. Uh, of course, uh, that particular struggle and that philosophy centered on breaking down all of the barriers of legal segregation. So I would say that in that period, uh, the basic thrust for the gaining of citizenship rights for Negroes uh, was to end uh, the humiliation surrounding the whole system of legal segregation. Richard, uh, Dr. King said that he was fighting for full citizenship rights. That interview was 11 months before he was murdered. Full citizenship rights. So in his eyes, into his estimation, we weren't full citizens. Am I right? Yep. Now, the 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment had been passed over 100 years before that. I think that Civil Rights Act of 1866 was supposed to guarantee our ancestors full citizenship rights, which they never got. So somebody's always been playing a game with black people. And it ain't been Democrats and Republicans and, you know, because we get caught up in this Trump, but this, that, and the other, this foolishness. It's been this government, whether it's Democrats or Republicans. This European government has always played games with our people. And it caused a quandary. It caused uh, 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 misunderstandings. It caused a double consciousness among our people. Because we're not European, even though we've adopted their values. But let me read something, and I see the folks are still on. But let me read this. It'll take five minutes, and then we're going to close the program out because we done went beyond time. This was something that Du Bois 
uh, uh, said about his people, and I'm quite sure everybody on here is familiar. But it, to, to me, it's always good to kind of look back at some of the messages of our ancestors. Du Bois, a scholar at historically black Atlanta University, established himself as a leading thinker on race and the plight of black Americans. He spoke out against the notion popularized by abolitionist Frederick Douglass that black Americans should integrate into white society. His essay published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1897 called The Strivings of the Negro, Du Bois wrote that black Americans should instead embrace their African heritage even though they worked and lived in the United States. Du Bois published his seminal work, The Souls of Black Folks, in 1903. In this collection of essays, Du Bois described the predicament of black Americans as one of double consciousness. Everyone feels two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconcilable strivings, two warring ideals and one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. You know, it's something there, Richard, when he's saying an American and a Negro. I think now that we can look at what he's saying and see that from a little different perspective. Richard. Yep. Okay. Uh, I'm just, I, I didn't want to be off base here. Now, check, check out what Douglas is saying in 1888. In 1888, Frederick Douglass visited South Carolina and, and Georgia on a Southern tour and realized how little he had known about the true conditions of his people in the South. On April 10th, 1888, soon after his return, he wrote to one of the leaders in a movement for encouraging the immigration of Southern Negroes to the Northwest. His quote, I hope that the relations between the former slaves and the old master class will gradually improve. But while I believe this, I still have such weak faith. I have of late seen enough, heard enough, and learned enough of the condition of these people in the South to make me welcome any movement which would take them out of this wretched condition in which I know them to be. While I will continue to labor for increased justice for those who stay in the South, I would give my hearty Godspeed in your immigration scheme. I believe you are doing a good work. So, Douglas, in 1888, this was 26 years after the emancipation, seeing that these Europeans had sold him a false bill of goods and the situation that his people were still in. A few days after he wrote that letter, he spoke in Washington, D.C. at a celebration of the 26th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in the District of Columbia. His address revealed how deeply he had been moved by his southern tour. His voice quivered with rage as he described how the Negro was nominally free, but actually a slave. In earnest tones, he told the nation, 
I hear and now denounce this so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. A fraud upon him, a fraud upon the world. He drew a terrifying picture of the exploitation of the Southern Negro. Here was the old Douglas, a forceful anti-slavery orator who had been moved audiences in two continents, a man who could bring home more vividly than any other speaker the evils of slavery and the necessity to overthrow it. Here was his tribute to the Negro people presenting the most powerful indictment of the new slavery in the New South. So, you know, Douglas called the Emancipation Proclamation a fraud. And he's the one that helped kind of forge that, Richard. <laughs> but he said it was a fraud on his people. Who was behind this fraud? It wasn't black folks. They were the recipients of the fraud. The same ones that's doing this foolishness now. The same descendants of these people. We got to realize who we're dealing with. Now, some people, oh, I got white friends. I got the, the heat. Uh, Biff is all right. Susan is great. Well, that's, that's you. But our people are suffering, and we got to do something about it. And it's all about coming together to develop this critical mass to move our people forward. I'm done, Richard. And I, I appreciate once again where we are in this conversation and moving that, moving our people forward. That's what I hear. And that's the support we're trying to, we're trying to give each other. Uh, Before we leave tonight, just want to give the lineup on time for an awakening media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African perspectives with brother Oshi. Always interesting dialogue and topics on African perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. On Tuesday, 8 to 10 p.m., starting on in February, the return of the Black Reality Think Tank with host Brother Alfonso Watkins. On Saturday, the elders of Sankofa with Sister Dr. Janine James from 7 to 9 on Saturday evenings. I want to thank everybody for, li- for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, Children playing after school. They seem to be so unaware. Oh, I know, I know the things that they'll soon have to take care of.
Save the children. 